Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit one million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Richie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. guys, I'm so desperate for a live show right now that I would even take a lawn ticket. But the best we can do for now is to create your own lawn at home. If you've listened to us before, you know about Sinlon and their high-quality, bio-based, incredibly realistic synthetic turf. Well, now Sinlon is opening an awesome new contest for our listeners, giving away a portable 5x7 roll of the best quality turf you'll ever find. We're headed into the winter. And pretty soon you're going to wish you had some soft green grass nearby to simulate that summer tour feeling. Sinlon turf can be used indoors or outdoors. You can create a play area for your kids, use it for yoga, or put it by your couch for the next time you're streaming a show or just doing a Zoom meeting. This fall, Sinlon is giving away three of their 5x7 rolls. And all you have to do is visit their website by December 9th and enter. Go to sinlon.com slash 36ftv. That's S-Y-N. L-A-W-N dot com. Enter the contest and check out their other fine turf products while you're there. See you on the lawn. I don't know about you, 
but I've probably worn shorts more in 2020 than any other year of my life. Sitting on all those video calls, you only have to be business dress code from the shoulders up, and you can be all casual below. If you want to use that work-from-home freedom to represent your favorite band, Section 119 has the high-quality Grateful Dead gear you need. Check out their board shorts, designed around steelies, lightning bolts, terrapin turtles, or the skull and roses skeleton. Or maybe you'd like their shirts and polos, which have subtle designs for that professional deadhead look on a Zoom meeting. And there's much more. Blazers, wallets, socks. I recently bought some bandanas on Section 119 myself to keep my quarantine hair in check. And they've been great. Really well made, washable, with a design that draws compliments from jam fans and normal people alike. So swing by section119.com, that's section119.com, enter the code 36 from the vaults upon checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's section119.com. Alright, so we're back into the dead this week. We survived our curveball week. And I don't know if you got the same impression, but you know, we did fish as a curveball in our first season. And there was a fair amount of complaining about that. I feel like there was complaints when we announced it. There were complaints when the episode went live. I still hear occasional complaints that we talked about fish on this podcast. We're recording this like fairly soon after the Radiohead episode went up, but I don't feel like we've heard a fraction of the complaints that we did about Fish, which is surprising to me. I was anticipating more complaints about Radiohead. I mean, am I wrong, or I mean, do I just have a, have like a better filter on my on my Twitter, where <laughs> I'm not seeing the complaints? Because right, I, I feel like we, people are okay with it. Yeah, I think. Well, one on one hand, I think we may have scared a lot of the trolls away by this point. <laughs> though, <laughs> though, if you're out there, uh, you know, thanks for sticking with us, even though you hate us. Uh, through, well, I got you know, I got to say too, hours of entertainment. You know, I feel like okay, like you and I, like you are the good cop and I'm the bad cop. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in the first season, I was bad copping a lot of the trolls. <laughs> I, I think I've chilled out since then because hey, it's all good. I understand. You like the podcast, and maybe you don't like it when we do a curveball. And that's a twisted sign of affection, really. If you're going to be complaining about it, it's just because you love our normally scheduled programming. So that's cool. Um, so I've laid off on the bad cop treatment, but yeah, we probably scared some of those people away after we did fish. But um, yeah, this is very interesting to me because I felt like with Radiohead, they're like way far afield. From the Grateful Dead, I feel like Fish, there were a lot more sort of obvious parallels to draw there. Not to well, toot our own it horn. Back, it comes back to the, uh, you know, the old narcissism of small differences theory, where yeah, people get a right. lot angrier about something that is adjacent to their favorite band or book or movie uh, than they would be about something that is far off. And yeah, I mean, I think it's also like, you know... The dead fish argument has been happening for decades, uh, whereas there are there's no bad blood between the Grateful Dead and Radiohead fan bases that I'm aware of. Right. Uh, so you know the Grateful Dead fans, you know, I, I I tip my cap to you for uh, being open to the idea 
of checking out some Radiohead. Though we did get a question today, which uh, I still haven't thought of a good answer to, which is if for a Radiohead fan who has never heard of the dead, where would you start? It's something we didn't really address in the Curveball episode. I can't even like think of like an era of the dead that would appeal to a Radiohead fan necessarily, but maybe something pops out to you. You know, I probably wouldn't even try to pick a a show that I thought was similar to Radiohead. I would probably just go with something relatively accessible, go with one of the obvious picks, you know, you know, maybe Cornell, I guess, even though that show didn't actually happen. Maybe that would that would probably appeal to Radiohead fans, though. You know, like this isn't happening. That's true. The, the CIA the plot is a very uh, Radiohead thing. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that, and just draw them in, you know, with the mythology of that, or you know, maybe just like some crazy eighty show, like where Brent is just going crazy like, with the synth sounds. <laughs> you know, like that could be something that maybe you'd use to to draw in a Radiohead fan. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like. I mean, there's all these things. I saw a story, I think Vice did this, where they were talking about how during the quarantine, a lot of people are listening to the dead now. Because, you know, this, being in isolation, it's like messing with people's heads and it's affecting what they're listening to. And it just seems like the dead are like one of those bands where I guess maybe if you have a lot of spare time, uh, you can dig into you know, three-hour shows with, with, with greater ease than you could, you know, before the world changed so much. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. I think more people are getting into the Dead and Fish and other jam bands, and it's a little bit of that and a little bit of, like, you want to get into a band that has thousands of different shows easily accessible to listen to uh, rather than a band with maybe a smaller catalog that you can burn through real fast. So uh, if you are a, quarant- a new quarantine deadhead, then... Uh, I hope we have done a public service for you <laughs> in helping you well, navigate the world of say, the Grateful Dead. You know, I think it's all these Grateful Dead podcasts, too, that are starting up <laughs> and bringing people into the fold. Of course, the Grateful Dead, they have their own podcast, good old Grateful sure. Dead podcast. You have us. We have, you know, if you like banter, you listen to our show. If you don't like banter, you listen to the good old Grateful Dead podcast. Great balance. Yeah, if you, you, if you, you like broke down pod and information, <laughs> you can listen to the official one. Yeah, broke down right. podcast. Another great uh, a neighbor of ours on the yeah. Osiris neighborhood. Yeah, if you like, also if you like a to, great deadhead. If you like to learn things and you want to like you know yeah hear from the experts, you listen to the Grateful Dead's podcast. If you don't like experts and you just like <laughs> want to hear people talk for a really long time, you if you want to our that podcast. true uh, uh, parking lot. Killing time, talking about the Grateful Dead experience. We're the the closest thing you got in the podcast world. If the thing you miss about going to shows is the music, you listen to the Grateful Dead podcast. If you miss the people talking behind you while the band is on stage forever. (laughs) The choppers, yeah. You listen to our podcast. You know, it's an obvious choice. One or the other. Or you can listen to both. Maybe you listen to them both at the same time to replicate the feeling of being at a show. Like you listen to... One podcast and one speaker, the other podcast and the other speaker. Right. And it's a Matrix recording <laughs> with uh, the official and the unofficial dead podcasts mixed can I d- simultaneously. Can I, just, 
Yes, yes, exactly. The, the Matrix. Uh, it's perfect. You know, I was just going to say quick that, you know, we've talked a little bit about, like, what our next curveball is going to be and our, you know, I guess our third season coming up in 2021. And uh, we, we both have some good ideas, but, like, one name that didn't come up that I think is locked in, we have to do it either next season or in our last season, is John Mayer. Mm. And I've, I've said this facetiously in the past, but I was thinking about this the other day, and I was like, we got to do John Mayer. <laughs> the quality of content in that episode <laughs> is just through the roof. And, like, you know, people are saying, you know, people have suggested that we do, like, Jerry Garcia Band or maybe, like, Phil and Friends or something, like some Grateful Dead offshoot, which I think we resist because it seems a little too obvious um, and doesn't give us a whole lot of fresh material to drudge up in the Kerbal episode, but I think Mare is like the happy medium between doing a curveball and doing a doing a spinoff. And also, you have to listen to a John Mayer live album of my choice. So there's also <laughs> that that right. I look forward to. Well, there's the sadistic angle. I think is really <laughs> the top reason for doing this. But you know, I I I agree. I think it would make for an excellent episode, one where oh, yeah. we don't agree all the time, which would be nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, but also, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's you know, it's of topical interest, and I think there's a lot to talk about there about John Mayer coming Have into the fold it? and renewing, you know, bringing his youthful vigor to the current incarnation oh. of the Grateful Dead. So, yeah, bringing him back to we'll, stadiums, we'll man. Bringing him back to stadiums, Johnny Mayer. Uh, Have you heard his cover of "Free Fallen"? By the way. <laughs> no, I have not. Okay, well, we might have to pick that live album. I've <laughs> I've already earmarked that one too because it's the longest one. Oh, Definitely sure. got to do the long, we got to do the two disc one because this is <laughs> this is a show. By the way, I'm going to segue into introducing our show now. This is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris, and uh, I'm Steve, and I'm Rob. Yes, we introduced ourselves. I like to introduce ourselves like at least every other episode. I think yeah. it's good it's good keep people keep people guessing we're here yeah, we're back talking back talking about the dead yep back talking about the grateful dead we're talking about dick's pick 16 at that's the fillmore right. auditorium not the fillmore west but the fillmore yes. auditorium that's a, an important distinction that we're going to be talking about very soon this is a show as we said this is a 60s show it's november 8th 1969 our first 60s show, we've done, we did Dick's Picks 4, which was like barely into the 70s. Right. But I kind of I feel like this show, I don't know, it's not terribly different, I guess, from that show, but I still felt like there was some, I don't know, a little bit, like some differences here, maybe. Yeah. So this show is only three months before Dick's Picks 4, which was in February of 1970. And I think we talked about it a lot in that episode, that the dead were changing you know, on a like daily, <laughs> they were evolving incredibly rapidly through this time. So it makes sense that a show just three months before would feel different in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, it's also on the other side of Altamont, which you know, the, it, it's very much like the uh, I don't know, rock and roll documentary thumbnail death of the yeah. '60s events. But at the same time, especially since the dead were so heavily involved in it. I do think there's something to be said for uh, these shows being on opposite sides of a pretty, you know, 
epochal event in rock and roll history and in Grateful Dead history. Yes, listening to the show, you could still feel the innocence of the 60s in the air, floating around, soon to be murdered at Altamont at the hands (laughs) of the Hells Angels and Sonny Barger. Probably a lot of Hell's Angels at this show, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure there were. I mean, they're always yeah. lurking about. They were still lurking after, around after Altamont, too, weren't they? I mean, they didn't. <laughs> a long time oh, after. Yeah. yeah, they never really went away from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> that. I mean, was there any, like, just, like, suspension period where they're like, dudes, uh, after Altamont, let's take, like, a three-month breather. Can't come to any dead shows. Or was it just like, eh, yeah, that's more of the Stones trip. We're not... We're not going to tell the Hells Angels what to do. I just wonder. Yeah, that's the thing. I think they said, hey, maybe let's take a break. And the Hells Angels said, no. <laughs> and they said, okay, yeah. <laughs> Whatever you say, Mr. Hells Angels. That's right. We have no leaders. Uh, we yeah. have no leaders in the dead. We right. have no, well, Phil's the cop. But even Phil was like, no. I'm, I could, I'll tell the kids not to stand on the chairs in the theater. <laughs> I'm not going to tell the Hells Angels right. not to come around backstage. Um this Dick's Picks, it came out on March 20... I was going to say, March. it's March 2000 it came out. And I think that this was yeah. the return of the Black Bar, too, at the bottom of the cover, if I'm correct. Oh, yeah. I don't think there was a Black Bar well, it's, on uh, 15. Or was there? No, there is. still using the... Uh, oh, there is, on 15, too? I think there's one on 15. I don't know if we commemorated the return of the Black Bar on uh, for 15, because <laughs> I, I love the Black Bar. Big fan of the black bar. Uh, yeah, I love it when it, when it yeah. was the black bar and the red top. Now we're doing the black bar and like the psychedelic, you know, Fantasia on the upper half. That's right. The screensaver. Yeah. Which somebody pointed out for this particular volume looks an awful lot like the uh, sort of clip art of COVID molecules <laughs> that have been in the news a lot. <laughs> it has a very viral, uh, it's like tie-dye virus virus molecule is the uh, theme for this this week that's why people are listening to the dead they're very relevant they're they're prescient <laughs> they're just <they're, laughs> right. they're speaking to our times with their uh, cd cover um you made an allusion to this earlier about how this tape which was recorded by owsley by the way of course as you would expect of mm. this era it's a little wobbly at times yeah but i think appropriate to the era and i have to say that i didn't really notice it all that much. I just feel like it was, um, it was almost like method recording or method tape maintenance. It just seemed to work with the era oh, of sure. music, right? It's got a good like uh, documentary feel to it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the story with with this show. So this is sort of the second uh, posthumous release uh, after Dick Lavalla left the Earth, and uh, it it. 
it's pretty well acknowledged that he had picked the next two volumes uh, in the series before he died. Uh, so we're still proceeding according to uh, Dick's uh, final will and testament for his series. Uh, so English Town was uh, Dick's Picks 15, and then this one, Dick's Picks 16. Uh, I, I've seen it in places listed as Dick's favorite show, though I feel like I've seen that said about like five or six other shows. And honestly, like Dick seems like the kind of guy that he would have said that you know, five or six different shows were his favorite show at various times in his life. Like he's just very enthusiastic and prone to a bit of hyperbole. So uh, I, I would say that this was one of his very favorite shows. Uh, and it seems like it was a kind of tape that he would take around to friends and play a lot. Uh, there's a If you look at like uh, one of the sources on the archive, there's an essay uh, by a guy named Jim Wise who helped sort of restore this particular tape. And he talks about how Dick brought over like a DAT, uh, a digital audio tape uh, for the kids out there uh, of this show and played it for him long before this Dick's Picks came out. And of course, being Dick was super enthusiastic about it. Uh, but when they listened to the show, he apologizes up front uh, and said, this is a great show, except the only tape we have in the vault has all these clicks. There was like a regular clicking in the right channel of this entire show. Uh, so they had to do some pretty like meticulous uh, fixing to get the clicks out of there. And I think that has something to do with how this recording sounds a little bit wobbly. Uh, it's an artifact of getting rid of these clicks. Uh, but it's like the kind of show that he probably loved from the very start of the Dick's Pick series and even before. Uh, but in the early days of the series, there was no way they were going to deal with this kind of tape that had so many technical issues. And so it took, you know, several years and 16 volumes for them to finally get around to it. So, yeah, I think it's one that he had in mind for a long time and like the magic just kind of had to happen on the production side. And unfortunately he didn't get to see it with his own eyes come out, but it's, uh, you know, part of the tribute to his legacy that they, they put it out in the, Dick, after his death. Dick's in the great beyond. He was digging it. He loved what they did with the tape, I'm sure. And I have to say, I, I, <laughs> I think it sounds I really like how it sounds personally, and I, I'll just say in general, again, I feel like I always say at the start of our episodes that I don't want to tip my hand, and then I proceed to tip my hand. But I'll just say that like <laughs> I think that this album was very aptly timed. I love listening to Late 60s Dead in the fall. This album was really hitting me where I breathe. I was really digging it a lot. I just got to say quick, too, that uh, just to correct myself, that the black bar on the cover returned on Dick's Picks 13. So, like, I'm way late on that. It's also possible that I've mentioned this in every episode since 13, and I just don't remember. <laughs> so, if if that is the case, take a drink, take a take a pull, whatever it is you're doing right now, listen to this episode. Uh, that That's me mentioning the black bar. Maybe this would be a new bit for me. Every time there's a black bar on the cover, I'll, <laughs> I'll bring it up like it's a new thing. Um, but See, if we were doing the uh, Steve unboxes his CDs version uh, videos that we were gonna, that I, I proposed a few episodes ago, we would know this. That's something. Maybe that's, that'll be like a season three thing. Maybe we'll do the unboxing then. <laughs> Bonus content and yeah. uh, for VIP subscribers. And I think the black box goes pretty well into uh, into uh, that season, season three, and then you get like. Uh, that like Dick Lavala cover on I think Dick's picks twenty five like there's a drawing of Dick on the cover which is pretty wild cover the special one off yeah, yeah. it's kind of kind of weird but um, 
that one looks like a uh like a bottom shelf liquor yeah <laughs> like like the cheap whiskey you uh get at the gas station gotta say not a huge fan of that cover i'm just gonna say that right now i i, I love the spirit <laughs> of it i love putting a drawing of dick like the idea of it but execution right. maybe leaves something to be desired just a little constructive criticism like 20 years after the fact. Um, but we mentioned this earlier that this shows at the Fillmore Auditorium, not to be confused with right. the Fillmore West, the Bill Graham, of course, venue. Fillmore Auditorium, it's kind of an interesting story because this was a venue run by a San Francisco band called the Flamin' Groovies, who... Yeah, so it was It was actually, uh, it was run by Bill Graham originally. So it was a Bill Graham venue, but it changed ownership uh, a, a, a few times in the '60s, it sounds like. Didn't it, uh, didn't it start as an independent venue, and then like he like kind of swooped in and took it, and then someone else took it from him, or was that the Carousel where Bill Graham did that? I thought I, right. I, it was like some weird. That was, thing. I think, if 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 I've pieced it together correctly, uh, Bill Graham had the Fillmore Auditorium in sort of the like '65, '66, '67 era. Uh, the Dead played there a lot in 66 and 67. Like, we're talking like 20 times a year because they like barely left San Francisco in those days. Um, at some point, Bill Graham gave it up. Uh, the Dead around that time also opened their own venue called the Carousel Ballroom. Uh, to nobody's surprise, uh, the Carousel Ballroom did not do well from a, a, a business perspective. Uh, the Grateful Dead were throughout their career not the best. Uh, entrepreneurs let's say uh whether it be a venue or a record label or anything else that they were running uh so the carousel ballroom you know went out of business or whatever and you know sort of trailed off and bill graham bought it and turned it into the fillmore west uh however the original fillmore the fillmore auditorium uh was still running and seemed to have changed ownership a, a number of times but at the time of these shows it was owned and booked by the flaming groovies which is a band that I think of as being like a much more of like a late 70s power pop band. And I am I was sort of vaguely aware that they were around at this time, but I don't really think of them as, you know, sort of late 60s San Francisco West Coast people at all. Yeah, they had a couple different incarnations. I know like late 60s, early 70s, they were more of like a Stonesy type band. Like the record I know the most from that era is this album called Teenage Head which came out in 71. Mm -hmm. And like the famous story about that record is that Keith Richards supposedly said that Teenage Head is better than Sticky Fingers. And mm -hmm. I guess the point of comparison there is that they came out around the same time. I just want to say Keith Richards is wrong if he did say that. Uh, <laughs> it is not better than yeah. Sticky Fingers. It's like a pretty good record though. Uh, but I know like when I bought the disc many years ago, there was a sticker on the cover with that quote from Keith Richards. So that was like the the blurb that they were using to sell that album. But yeah, I think okay. I think generally people think of them, yeah, like the like late 70s they had that album Shake Some Action and all right. of these great yeah. power pop songs. There's that great there's, there's a greatest hits album called Flamin' Groovy's Greatest Grooves, I think it's called, which is a really great compilation, good place to start if you want to dig into that era of the Flamin' Groovies, but yeah, they were they were wrong for a long time. I feel like they never really hit it big. They kind of went through again, had different guises where they were trying to break through, and were always, I guess, more of a cult band. And then, yeah, I think of them as sort of like an NRBQ type of band. Like they're like a band for people that are real crate diggers or really into obscure 
rock and roll bands that never made it big. Uh, this, I know like uh, Yola Tango are big Flaming Groovies fans. They're very much a Yola Tango type of band. <laughs> right. Like, uh, and, and, and I mean that in the best way possible. Like the, the people that just, you know, they wrote great songs, but they never quite clicked. And so there's a select few group of people that really love the Flaming Groovies a lot and think they were like as good as the Stones and the Beatles. Yeah, including and, uh, Keith Richards. Just never got their due. Keith Richards is in yeah, exactly. that camp, apparently. Um, a Stones themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. So at the, so the Flaming Groovies were not on this bill. Uh, they did. I was surprised that they wouldn't just book themselves onto every uh, major band that played their own venue. But I guess, you know, maybe that's not the way you rolled back then. Uh, instead, there were two bands that I have never heard of outside of this context. Um, and I don't know if you have, but they were bands called the South Bay Experimental Flash, uh, another Bay Area band, and a band called Alligator, hmm. uh, which... If you try and search, uh, you know, Alligator and Grateful Dead or Alligator in San Francisco, all you're going to get is the Grateful Dead song called Alligator. It's kind of funny that they would share a bill with a band called Alligator. Uh, nobody seems to have any information, even like the you know, Lost Live Dead blog. They had a little bit about South Bay Experimental Flash, which was apparently, I, I want to say they were probably jazz rock because they had a guy playing saxophone and flutes and a guy playing keyboards. Uh but Alligator seems to have been lost uh, to the sands of time. Uh, maybe they were a Grateful Dead cover band opening up for the Grateful Dead. I don't know. I'm going to take a stab and say that there have been a lot of bands called Alligator over the years. I feel like that name <laughs> yeah. has been utilized by more than just that group. But yeah, I'm guessing like th- this venue, what's the capacity we're talking? You're probably like a, like a couple thousand at the most? A couple thousand, yeah. Because I think the thing that is striking to me about this show i think especially the the first disc or the first set is the casualness of the performance um that it feels like a hometown show especially you know they're as you'll hear like on the first disc they're they're trying out a lot of material that's going to end up on working man's dead and it's like still in kind of like an embryonic state i mean there's songs here that are making their debut in this show uh, that they've never played before, um, and also songs that like yeah, you could tell that they're still kind of working out the arrangements a bit, which I find to be like really fascinating about this show. There's aspects to it that I think mm-hmm. are, uh, you know, like the looseness of it, I really like, and it actually also made me think of Dick's Picks Eleven, um, which was that show from September of '72. Uh, I think that was Stanley Theater, New Jersey, uh, where. I remember when we were talking about that Dick's Picks, there was this feeling of like them kind of pointing to the next era. This was almost like a tween era for the for the for the dead, where you could feel like it's seventy two, but there's like just glimmers of what they're going to become in seventy three and seventy four. Of course, that show is I think much tighter than this show is in a lot of ways. But I kind of got the same mm-hmm. feeling listening to this album about like early seventies dead that. On this album, you, you, there's a really clear dichotomy between like the things that they're working on that are going to kind of define them in the early 70s, and then the back half of the show being like sort of classic primal dead that you'd expect to hear like on Live Dead. Yeah. Well, th- it kind of spoke to my ambivalence about all these studio outtakes they've been putting out this year. Like, first it was the Working Man's Dead 50th anniversary, and 
just recently the American Beauty 50th anniversary, and they released these um, compilations called The Angel Share, which is a lot of like demos and alternate takes from the recordings of those albums, uh, which if you listen to them, they're not very revelatory at all <laughs> because both of those albums famously uh the dead spent a lot of time refining these songs before they got into the studio because they wanted to make a like fast cheap albums after making slow expensive albums up to that point uh so they had they worked on these songs really hard and then they got into the studio and they recorded them in two weeks and then they had these albums so when you listen to those studio recordings it's basically just like here's all the ways they screwed up when they were in the studio it wasn't like they were rearranging the songs in the studio on the fly and you know you can hear this like incredible creative process uh instead of doing that in the studio they did it live right like they workshopped all these songs for you know, several months, six, nine months before they went into the studio to record Working Man's Dead. So the first disc of this Dixpix is almost like the demos for Working Man's Dead. It's just, it, you know, it's like demos before a live audience instead of uh, in the studio. So it's a lot more interesting for how these songs developed uh, than the actual, you know, studio outtakes that the band has been releasing. Those are still interesting and it, you know, but they're interesting to listen to like once. Right. Whereas I think you get a lot more out of listening to the show and hearing these songs in their early forms. Yeah. There's like, there's definitely versions of songs on here that like you can poke holes in, in terms of the performance quality and, and, and again, just, you know, sensing like if the dead even know what they're, doing at times on some of these performances but like i really i really dug it i really liked that looseness and i I think for the reason that you're saying that it does seem a little bit more illuminating in a way of like how these songs developed you know to hear Mm -hmm. some of the versions that they're playing in this show so i think that's like i think a big bonus uh for this dicks pick Right, and just to talk a little bit more about this run, so it was a two-night run at the Fillmore Auditorium, uh, Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, the show that uh, is on Dick's Pick 16 was the second of those shows, so they played November 7th and November 8th. Uh, one song from November 7th is added on to the end of this Dick's Picks as filler. It's Turn On Your Love Light. We'll get there at the end. Uh, the November 7th show, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, Steve, but uh, it's... Uh, you know, pretty similar. I think they knew what they wanted to do uh, with these shows, and uh, it has the same sort of structure that we're going to talk about here, where it's a lot of new material for the first half, and sort of them playing their almost standard set for this time uh, in the second half. Did you listen to that show? No, man. I was, you know, at the time of this taping, I was like neck deep in in book promo, so I was pretty busy doing that. And I have to say too, yeah, that. And again, I'm tipping my hand. I'm doing what I say. I shouldn't be doing, but I tip it. That uh, there's one disc of this album that I think I'm going to put on my like all star disc list for this season. There's a there's okay. one disc in particular that I listened to several times uh, over the course of you know getting ready for this episode that I think is really outstanding that I that I enjoyed a lot. Um, so yeah, I think I was just enjoying the album. I didn't really want to venture off into any other show. Uh, just, just loving Dick's pick 16. And I have to say too, that like, and we're, you know, we're going to get into this once we get into the show, but like, you know, regular listeners of this podcast will 
remember that I have expressed some ambivalence about Pigpen in the past. <laughs> Offering all due respect to Pigpen, generally, it's like I love looking at photos of Pigpen. I think he looks really cool. <laughs> I love the idea yeah. of Pigpen. But, you know, sometimes as like a musical force in the dead, you get a little impatient with, with Pigpen. There's like a lot of, you know elongated blues jams during this era. And Mm -hmm. if you have the choice of listening to so many different eras, at some point I maybe lose patience and I want to listen to the Keith era or listen to Brent or, uh, which I think are just a little bit more maybe musically dynamic at times. If I don't want to hear a really long, good morning, little schoolgirl. Now, having said that, I was really enjoying Pigpen in this, on this album. Like, and there's a ton of Pigpen on this album. Got <laughs> yeah, Pigpen coming up. I mean, our if ears. you are Pigpen averse, yeah. If 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 you're an anti-Pigpen person, the November Seven show is probably a little better suited uh, for you because it does it has a you know a, a number of Pigpen songs, but not as long of Pigpen songs as this set has. I mean, this is. We haven't had a really huge Pigpen show. We had Dick's Picks 4, which had, you know, a very long love light on it. Uh, but because it kind of jumped around and clipped out the highlights between two shows, it, it, it sort of danced around a lot of the Pigpen material. This one is like, you know, Pigpen is still the sort of co-front man of the group, right? Oh, yeah. He is well, he... all, all over these discs. There's like a whole know... disc devoted to Big Ben, practically. Yeah, I don't even know if I'd call him co-front man. I, I might just call him front man. I mean, you and I were talking before we started recording. I think Pig Pen, I think you hear his voice on this album more than you hear Jerry. I mean, if it's, mm. if it's not more, it's like very close. Uh, because like the Jerry vehicles don't really have a lot of vocals or like where he's like the main vocalist anyway sometimes he's like singing with with other people whereas like a lot of the big sort of like show like set piece numbers in this show are like pig pen numbers where he's like you know getting his mojo rising for like you know 25 (laughs) minutes you know so he's rapping yeah you know one thing we haven't talked about yet too that's really uh different about this dick's picks that we haven't experienced yet is tom constantin is in this show right tc tc baby uh yeah sort of the uh, uh I don't know, maybe he's the most mysterious member of the dead it's kind of like between him and ned who was not really a true official member of the of the dead but sort of i think down to the timing of when he was in the band and his role in the band uh TC has the most sort of mystery about him, I would say. Well, like, is TC, I mean, he's not really considered a full-fledged member either, is he? I mean, I know, like, like in Bill Kreutz... Yeah, he went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when the dead got inducted. Uh, he's uh, but like you read a, 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 a Hall of Fame-acknowledged member of the dead. But, like, in Bill Kreutzman's book, he basically says that, like, I don't consider him a full-fledged member of the dead. And <laughs> it seems like there yeah. was some weirdness around TC, because, like, one, he was a Scientologist... And, yeah. Which means that he didn't drink or do drugs. I guess he was in the military, so that was like another yeah, he was in the Air Force. layer of weirdness. And uh, I know like, so he was a he was a computer programmer in the Air Force. We should say, so, and I got, you know, like it's kind of like the nerdiest thing you can do in the military. I gotta say, he's like a pretty nerdy looking dude too. Like I, you know, he's, yeah. he's got the cane. He's like parting his hair down the middle. I know, like <laughs> the, like like the thing that Kreitzman writes about um, in his book is that like he felt that when uh, they were 
rehearsing with TC that he was like pretty good, but then he'd get in front of an audience and that he'd freeze up. He felt like he wasn't mm-hmm. really like, you know, opening himself up to the improvisational nature of the band. Although I will say again that I think in this show there are several songs that I really appreciate what what TC's doing. He's playing a lot of organ uh, in the, in this show, uh, which um, is a pretty cool element and. Uh, I don't know. There were there were a bunch of times where I thought, "Ooh, I like what he's doing here." He's almost got like a Garth Hudson type feel to it sometimes. Like I was getting some real band vibes, especially in that first disc, um, more yeah. than I will often get like with other dead keyboardists. I don't know how you feel about TC. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison because like he was, I think, the right keyboardist for a version of the Dead. That only existed for maybe two years maximum, which is kind of the 67, 68 into 69 period. I mean, so TC is also on Live Dead and he's all over Live Dead. You can hear him very uh, prominently in the mix. Uh, It's kind of his shining moment uh, with the Grateful Dead. Uh, And, you know, he was really brought into the band to solve sort of a problem with Pigpen, which is that... You know, Pigpen was still very much a huge part of the band and kind of the face of the band, uh, but he was not really a talented musician uh, instrumentally, I guess. Like, he he was a great singer. He was a great sort of, you know, I said rapping earlier, and it's kind of true because he was sort of like a, you know, classical, like, MC type of guy, right? He was just like... I was going to say hype man. uh, He's like a hype man. Yeah, exactly. Kind of... Keeping the party going, right? right? He's just there to like to get people hyped up, to get people sort of like you know, uh, you know, horny, <laughs> and like, and just like you know, create this like vibe of you know rock blues excess. Uh, but as an organist, he left a lot to be desired, right? So when the Dead started out, they were like a bar band, they were a blues band, they were kind of a garage band, and he could play, you know, tap out some one finger parts on a on an organ, and that was fine. Uh, but when they started playing twenty minute versions of Dark Star, uh, Pigpen was kind of left behind. So uh, they needed somebody who could play, step in and play organ during these really long psychedelic excursions they were going on. Uh, and they w- went with TC because he was an old buddy of Phil's from Phil's like uh, music school days. So uh, Phil and TC sort of ran with like the Steve Reich, Terry Riley crowd. So this very like modern composition, experimental classical music, uh, avant-garde uh, ensembles. Uh, so he was very much a you know a Phil. Uh, acquaintance that was brought into the band with a very Phil mentality about music. Uh, they originally brought him in to do uh, studio work. Like he played on the Anthem of the Sun sessions. He plays on Aksumaksua. Uh I think, you know, other than his contributions to Live Dead, when I think of TC, I think of the harpsichord on Mountains of the Moon. Like that's a very like TC sound, but he also played, I think, prepared piano on Anthem of the Sun. So they were like sticking coins and you know, nails and stuff in a piano to get weird sounds and freaking out the Warner Brothers producers. Uh, so that's kind of where he's coming from. So when it wasn't he more, you of can a, tell, and he was also more of a piano player anyway, right? Like, and, and they put him on organ when they yeah. when they played live. But he, that was like, which just reminds me of like that was they did that to Vince Wellnick too, I, I, right? Because I remember Wellnick was a piano player, but they wanted him 
to because they had Hornsby, so they had Hornsby play the piano, and then they had Wellnick do all the, you know, the Brent synthy stuff, which he wasn't comfortable with, and then they were also like programming his sounds too. So like they really screwed right. over screwed over Vince, but yeah, TC and Vince seem like they're in the same zone for me, like and dead keyboards. Yeah. And he like um I think it was a little bit down to like the economics of the dead at the time. <laughs> like they had an organ and they couldn't afford to buy anything else. They couldn't afford to bring a piano on tour for sure. Uh and he basically had to play Pigpen's organ, which it sounds like he didn't really like playing. And there's a lot of quotes you can find on the internet of him talking about how he was always fighting for sonic space around the guitars in the band he felt like his organ wasn't loud enough or it wasn't it, it, it couldn't like find its own sort of niche in the dead sound and there's all those uh, like and he would have pig pens all his mustache hairs were in there too so he had to deal with that <laughs> exactly and... it probably was uh pretty filthy i would want to say <laughs> like... i mean it's a guy named pig pen and his instrument you know it's got some gross right it's a little sticky i, I bet the keys were a little sticky yeah, I... I would i would put money on that i picture like a ham sandwich <laughs> being stuck in like some keys and like you know broken bottle of jack like you know down by the right. foot pedals or whatever um like hiding in the cabinet yeah so he, he and he like became sort of like a big synth guy later down the line but you know we're talking 1969 where the the synthesizers that were available were as you know they they were as big as a room <laughs> so he was definitely not going to play a, a a synthesizer live and i think he kind of did the best he could with what he had at his disposal and you know it was really when the dead started moving towards this country rock sound uh in working man's dead and american beauty that he just didn't have a place anymore though i think you're right he contributes some interesting parts to that material here in the sticks picks but it, it i think it was clear to both parties that he was not the right guy uh for the dead as 1969 was turning into 1970 as the co-host of a jam band podcast i'm embarrassed to admit that i'm still pretty new to the world of cbd but Sunset Lake CBD is a great way to give it a test run. Sunset Lake is a family-owned farm in Vermont that started as a dairy supplier for Ben and Jerry's. A couple years ago, they got into growing hemp for CBD, and they've got a whole bunch of products available in their online shop at sunsetlakecbd.com. Seriously, I had no idea there were so many different ways to use CBD. Sunset Lake has tincture and salve, gummies, CBD coffee, even flour, keef, and pre-rolls, if smoking is more your thing. Their hemp is 100% pesticide-free and organic, and everything is lab-tested so you know exactly what you're ingesting. In July, they're donating 4.2% of their online sales to the Drug Policy Alliance, a pretty good cause. So far, I've tried the gummies and found them very mellow after long bike rides. I also gave some of their pet tincture to my sister-in-law for her super high-strung dogs who seem to enjoy it as well. If you too want to sample some Sunset Lake CBD products, we've got a promo code, VAULT15, that will give you 15% off anything in their store. Again, that's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code VAULT15. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. 
in our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes. We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. that'll be another fun thing to talk about once we get to the show but before we get to that we have to set the scene as we always do by talking about what else has happened in pop culture at the time of this show early november 1969 momentous time in american history of course post woodstock and pre-altamont you know, i guess should we call that a sweet spot? I don't know if it's a sweet spot exactly, but it's it, it's something. Uh, but the number one song in America was Wedding Bell Blues by The Fifth Dimension, uh, which yeah. is a song I, we've all heard, I think, on oldies radio many times. <laughs> Have we? I had never heard this song. You know this song? Before. Oh, man. No, I did not know this song. I know The Fifth Dimension because of The Age of Aquarius, yeah. which is like, you know, like a sign that this is the time in the 60s where it had been completely commercialized right uh and uh you know the 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 summer of love was just another like marketing thing already i got the wedding bell blues yeah that's a that's that's like an oldie staple i feel like that's been yeah played to death yeah fifth dimension was like one of the biggest groups in america i feel like for maybe a couple years were they like to uh three dog night what three dog night was to like the dead like it's the, it's like another level of yeah and corniness. Yeah, I think that's sort of like supper club hippie music, you know. Like yeah, like Three Dog Night. It's like dudes with long hair and mustaches, but it's like yeah, they could play like supper clubs and and it appeal to people of all ages. You know, they're just singing good pop songs. And I think Fifth Dimension was they the appeal same to kind the of thing. squares, man. They're sellouts. You know, like I could see like <laughs> Don Draper. If you had like a <laughs> yeah. younger girlfriend take her to like a Fifth Dimension concert or something, that could have been an episode of Mad Men, I think. Um, <laughs> other big songs around this time, like Elvis, Suspicious Minds with Donna right. on backing Which means, vocals. That's right. It means Donna was on the charts. That's while right. The dead were floundering. That's Flo- right. The, the dead couldn't sell a record. And their future uh, background singer was number two on the charts yep. this week. I think that's my favorite Elvis song, too. I love Suspicious Minds. That's- 
Great song. That's great. Yeah. Love I love late sixties Elvis. Great period for him. Uh you got the Beatles, double sided single, come together in something. Not bad. Not a bad single for the Beatles. <laughs> Uh, Pretty good. Pretty good B-side. Yeah. You got hot fun in the summer. <laughs> Is that a double A side or a B-side? I don't know. I think they did double A's at that point. I mean, yeah, double A's. They, uh, you know, just like um, uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane is a double A. I mean, the Beatles just yeah. had songs to burn. Um, they, well, they had, to, they had to massage all those egos too, right? So you well, couldn't tell George it was a B-side. Well, George, I mean, finally give him a, put him on a single. At the end there. That's true. That's, and that's peak George, too. 6970, George was the man. Yeah. Going I would into, much rather hear something than uh, Come Together. I like Come Together. I'm pro Come Together. but <laughs> I yeah, like it, but something is uh, is incredible. That's a standard. That's a standard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hot Fun in the Summertime, Sly and the Family Stone. I've been listening to more Sly and the Family Stone lately. I feel like Sly Stone... It's been lost to history a little bit. People uh, overlook yeah. him just because he kind of fell into a... I don't know what he's into now. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if he's still on drugs. I mean, do you remember when he was on the Grammys? Maybe like 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was random. He had like a little burst of like public appearances again before he well, I think, disappeared. I think he made an album around that time that was... I'm sure it was amazing because we can't remember it. But um, <laughs> I just remember, like, he walked out and, like, hit maybe a key on a keyboard and then, like, walked off. Nice. That's my memory of it. He may not he may not have even hit a key. I think he walked out, maybe clapped his hands and, and walked back out, which, you know, that's kind of awesome, actually. I kind of like... If, if that's yeah, what he did... it's pretty baller, yeah. We'll have to look that up after this episode, see if my memory's correct. I was just impressed that uh, Hot Fun in the Summertime was still on the charts in November. Like that's that's when you know you have a good song that like it's like very specifically targeted at targeted for one season of the year and people still wanted to hear it in uh when the the temperatures were dropping. That's a good tune, man. Doesn't matter what the yeah. what the what the temp is. Um number one album in America, Abbey Road. Uh which, you know, I guess you would expect that in late 69. Uh, I guess uh, Led Zeppelin Two is on the horizon. I think that's like the big, uh, you know, sixties into seventies moment when Led Zeppelin Two displaces Abbey Road at the top of the charts. Yeah, we talked about it in uh, Dick's Picks Four. I think it came out right around the time of that show. Like Led Zeppelin Two and Black Sabbath came out in early nineteen seventy, and yeah, not bad. That was it. Not bad. It was, it was a new decade. I think Zeppelin Two yeah. came out at the end of sixty nine. I think that was sixty nine. It's Zeppelin Two, okay. and then. But that was like their first big album in America. I don't think Zeppelin. I think Zeppelin One was like a. It was a hit, but Zeppelin Two was like when they became Zeppelin. And then I think Zeppelin Three comes out in seventy, and mm-hmm. it, it isn't as big of a hit because it's the acoustic record. And then Led Zeppelin Four just destroys the world. Um, and number one film in America, Downhill Racer, which. Uh, it's with Robert Redford and Gene Hackman. I have not seen Downhill Racer. Have you seen that? Oh, okay. Have you seen- I haven't either. I was counting on you to have seen it. I, I'm angry at myself. I love Redford. I love <laughs> Hackman. That's directed by Michael Ritchie, who's a great director. Oh, okay. Directed The Candidate, directed The Bad News Bears. A lot of really good 70s, oh, wow, kind of yeah. like subversive comedies. Um, I haven't seen Downhill Racer. Um, 
another Redford movie came out around the same time, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I have seen that many times. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, it's like Redford was was huge. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to think of at any time of a, you know, two movies starring the same dude coming out within a couple of weeks of each other. But and, things were different back then. And both classics. I mean, Downhill Racer. I I have not seen it, but I it has a great reputation. There's a Criterion edition of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'll have to see it's it. A, it's a skiing movie, right? Yeah, he's like a he's like a skiing hotshot, and Gene Hackman <laughs> is the coach. Gene, oh, okay. Gene Hackman always has to play the coach. And like at that time, he was probably yeah. Hackman was probably like thirty nine, forty. You know? <laughs> yeah, but he was already like sixty five. You know, already already a coach. Yeah, he's already Stere- yeah stereotyped as a coach. But that's like pre French Connection, so that's like early. Because well, he was in Bonnie and Clyde. I think that was like his breakout. Oh, right. And then, yeah, as a supported guy, yeah. And then French Connection made him like the man. Um, yeah. The number one TV show, uh, I guess we're going to say Laughing, right? Laughing and Gunsmoke. I mean, they were like the two yeah. big shows of 6970. Yeah, you're struggling for data when you go back to uh <laughs> Late 1969 and uh, looking for these things, but those were the, I think, duking it out for the top spot all year. The the one thing I found interesting is that uh, I think it was November 10th, 1969 was the uh, premiere of Sesame Street. Ah. So, you know, the dead are still kicking it and uh, Sesame Street still rolling. Sesame Street, the Grateful Dead of children's programming. It is. I mean, because... They're in the, like... 5,000 shows or something at this point. <laughs> well, it's, it's Sesame Street, too, definitely had, like, a hippie vibe to it. Oh, sure. Jim Henson? Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's funny, too, that that Laughing and Gunsmoke are the, are the top shows. You know, the, the you've got the Hippie America, although it's, like, a Hollywood version of Hippie, of hippie America. And then uh, you've got, like, old-school conservative Gunsmoke. That's right. This is another like once upon a time in Hollywood exactly. type of era, right? It's a couple years removed, of course, from the uh, Manson murders, right? Or no, oh, same when year, sixty nine. Sixty nine, yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, that would we're, have been we're, August. We're, we're, we're square in it. Yeah, I feel like so uh, Manson was like arrested. Leonardo around. DiCaprio is pointing at his uh, podcast app right now and saying, "I think Manson is, was uh, like arrested like in December, maybe of 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 sixty nine. It was like around this time. Like there was he was either." Um, arrested or there was like a manhunt for him but again there's that's a whole other episode there's all that weirdness about when they knew he did it and when they actually mm-hmm. arrested him I don't know if you like read that book Chaos at all hmm. no I haven't read I gotta check that one out the conspiracy I read, paper uh, I, read, I read Helter Skelter back in oh man back in the old days Chaos but, is uh, like debunking Helter Skelter left and right and like Buglagosi, because wow. like the you know the the DA is it Victor right. Bugli- Who wrote Helter Skelter, yeah. That's like the big plot line of of chaos that like that dude was covering stuff up, and mm-hmm. this guy is digging into the real story. Spent twenty years investigating this thing. That book is nuts, by the way. Chaos. Read that book. It it's like insanity on every page. Just. A conspiracy yeah. theory upon conspiracy theory in that in, in that book, very fascinating. I gotta check, I gotta check that out. I've always been amazed that, that there's no dead Manson connection 
you know, since he like got so close to the Beach Boys and got close to like the Birds manager and stuff like that, that they weren't in L.A. At some point they would have crossed paths. Yeah, but you know, it's a long time, long ways from L.A. to yeah. San Francisco. I guess. Yeah, it's so, like yeah, the, it's weird. Yeah, like you'd think Manson would be up in the Bay Area, but no, he was in L.A. hanging out with all these L.A. Yeah. you know, cats and the dead. They were up north. They looked down on the L.A. bands. And uh, it paid (laughs) off. Stayed away from Manson. man we're here at the show finally again it's november 8th 1969 dicks pick 16 disc one yep we're, we've gone through uh opening sets from alligator and the south <laughs> bay experimental flash uh and uh here come the dead so this was you know i, I was thinking back to dicks picks four and how we had to do all this like or like detective work on whether there were early shows, late shows, how, where, what shows, what songs went where, when did the Almond Brothers band play, all this stuff. But the good thing about this show is that it was just one long set. So yeah, there's not a set one dead. and set two. It's just yeah, it's just one. It's like three hours. Right, exactly. They just came out and they played. So it, nice and simple, though. Uh, you know, as we've said, the two, the three discs really divide up nicely as almost kind of like perfectly like three different eras of the dead uh not necessarily chronologically but uh yeah very different feel for each disc of this set it's kind of it's kind of nuts that it's not split into sets because it it really does uh fold very nicely into each disc It, it it feels like they separated it even though they didn't which which is crazy so we're but we're gonna separate it when we talk about it we're gonna talk about disc one first because that makes sense. And uh, we're going to kick off with Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. And I, I already made a reference to this. I feel like this is my go-to joke about Pigpen era shows. That it starts off <laughs> yeah. with like a 15-minute Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. Which I've had the experience of that being an endurance test. Um, and I think like, you made jokes about this. Like, oh, here we go. Steve's got to sit through a Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. And uh, I don't know if I surprised you because like, we were talking about this, you know, texting back and forth. And I was like, I, I actually enjoyed this Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. And I don't know if it's because we're coming off the Radiohead show, and this is like the opposite of Radiohead. <laughs> could not be, could not be farther away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagining Tom York singing Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. It would be amazing. <laughs> um, so I was just primed to like, you know, just be ready for this. And I dug it. I dug this. I, I and it, I mean, it has all the hallmarks of this era of dead. It's like a big, fat bass sound coming at you right away. Uh, it just sounds surly and dark, and I, I was digging it. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I think we, we, we've touched on the Hells Angels already. And I think, you know, Pigpen was sort of like the patron saint of the Hells Angels in some ways, I feel like. Like he was like, he had the image of like a biker dude, even if he wasn't actually a biker dude. Uh, so, you know, this is like, this is, we haven't brought it up yet, uh, but, you know, a, a term Dick coined, which has really lived on, is the primal dead, right? So, and people have debated what eras are considered actual, quote unquote, primal dead. Uh, but this show, I think, is pretty clearly uh, squarely in the center of what the primal dead was. And a song like Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl... <laughs> I think fits that perfectly. Oh yeah, because right? it's still got it's it's got these like roots in the blues. It's very like grungy and nasty and kind of like I don't know, gross. Oh yeah, <laughs> in a way. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, it, I guess you can forgive them for the times. But it, you know, it, it it's got that you know lascivious edge to it. Oh yeah. Uh, that that pig pen brings to the band, and I mean, it's kind of a great like opener, right? Uh, it, it, you know, playing just like standard twelve-bar blues for like thirteen minutes and letting Pigpen do his thing and getting all the sound right and getting everybody moving and it it, it, it fulfills its purpose here. That November seventh show, by the way, opened with Morning Dew, which we've talked a lot about Morning Dew openers this season, especially. Uh, which you know, it's it's great, of course, it's Morning Dew, but in a way, like a schoolgirl opener kind of hits the mark a little better for like a Saturday late night. Uh, yeah, it's you know, it's, it's about fine. vibe. It's not like blo- this is all about exactly. vibe. It's, you it's, know, you get sucked into it's this. It's a mood setter, right? And like, yeah. And what's more primal than uh, statutory rape? You know, I mean, that that's about as primal as uh, you can get. Uh, which <laughs> right is, at the end of the song, <laughs> like the. Uh, I like how just Pigpen milks the last, you know, line of the thing where he's like, and I don't right. even care if you're 13 years old. And, uh, <laughs> and you believe you, it's like he has a moment to reconsider <laughs> and then he just goes for it. It's like, yeah, man, you, you could have kicked that age up a couple notches. You know, you had the choice. Exactly. Maybe, maybe it crossed your mind. And you're like, no, committing to it, committing to the sleaze bag. Dirt bag rendition. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he, I guess you just kind of shrug your shoulders at that. You're like, well, it's poetic license. They're not literally with 13 year year old girls. Hopefully, uh, there's none of that right. going on backstage. You hope it's just a song. Uh, and and your know, pigpen, by all accounts, was a total sweetheart. Yeah, too. like he was definitely projecting an image that was not, you know, true to life. Like he kind of seems like the biggest like introvert in all of the early Grateful Dead. Like he just liked to like hang out in his room and play blues records. And it seems like he had pretty like steady ladies. And yeah, we didn't talk about this with, uh, you know, TC, but they were like best buds, like <laughs> improbably, even though it was kind of like TC was brought in to be his replacement. Like they were roommates on tour and even lived together, I think for a while in San Francisco. So you know it. You know it, it's been a long time since Pigpen died, and if there was any dirty laundry about Pigpen, like it would have come out by now. But it it really seems like Pigpen was a good guy, despite you know what he looked like. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the biopic I want to see about the dead. I just want to see like the Pigpen and TC movie, just them rooming together, <laughs> having adventures. The odd, 
the odd couple uh, Grateful Dead style. Yeah, I love it. Um, next, we go into Casey Jones, of course, one of the great Grateful Dead classics. And this uh, links up with what we were talking about earlier with them playing songs that are going to become classics, but they're not well-known yet. They haven't appeared on the album, and they're still working it out. And this is like a pretty pretty rough version of the song, but I think pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we talked about in Dix Picks 4 that, you know, they hadn't even recorded Working Man's Dead at that point. Uh, but Casey Jones already sounded like the album version. Like, they open that, uh, you know, that the volume opens with it. Uh, I think it was the late show opener uh, on that night. But, uh, yeah, it just sounded, like, perfectly realized. You know, almost like, you know, this song must have just, you know, like a lightning bolt occurred in its final form. But then you go back to this show, and it's still really rough around the edges. And kind of fun to hear, like, oh, yeah, they, they, they did actually need to workshop this song for a bit live before Casey Jones became Casey Jones. So it's a little bit wobbly and ragged in a way that I that is appealing, um, even if it's not you know, quite as quote-unquote good and mature as it would become later. But that kind of sets a tone for the rest of this disc in a lot of ways is, you know, here's sort of early sketches of these Working Man's Dead songs. And that seems especially true of like the next song, which is which is Dire Wolf. And I got to say, like, Dire Wolf has really proven to be like one of the more interesting songs in the Dick's Pick series because you think of it as being a pretty straightforward tune but like we've heard like a lot of different versions of of this like we've heard it acoustically we've heard fast almost like honky-tonk versions we've heard like slowed down versions and this version it goes on for like eight and a half minutes and it feels like a rehearsal almost like they run (laughs) through the song essentially twice like in a row (laughs) and um so it's definitely not the most polished version of, of dire wolf but I found myself really enjoying it. And I think what I was saying before about, you know, TC having like a Garth Hudson feel, I was getting a real kind of like almost like basement tapes vibe from this performance. It felt very unselfconscious. And I, I could just feel like the hometown aspect of this gig really come through in that performance where they must have felt co- more comfortable at home playing a song like this that maybe wasn't fully formed but it's like we can try it out in front of an audience. This is our crowd. It's not like we're in Florida or something. We don't have to worry about strangers judging us. And I think it's really interesting for that reason, even if it's not, you know, by any stretch, the tightest version that you're going to hear of of Dire Wolf. Right, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a ballsy move (laughs) to come out and play, uh, you know, five songs from... An album that isn't going to come out for, you know, I I believe six months from the time of this show. Uh, Songs that aren't really even finished in a lot of ways. Uh, And they were just like, hey, you're going to ride with us here and listen to all these songs as we're we're nailing down the arrangement on them. Uh, And yeah, you're right. They, I think the reason why it's such a long version of Direwolf is because they literally go through the song twice. Like, they they finish the the verses and Jerry just like goes right back into the first verse and they sing the whole song over again. So uh, I don't know if that was intentional or <laughs> if they were like, maybe we do need to do these things twice, but it's, it's kind of funny to hear. And Dire Wolf had a really interesting early history um, because it was 
like some of the early versions have Jerry playing pedal steel and there's actually some versions where Bob sings it because Jerry couldn't sing and play pedal steel at the same time. Uh, so this one is actually, it's sung by Jerry, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's clearly a song that they hadn't quite nailed down yet. And it's got this like really peppy organ <laughs> from DC, what you were talking about with like sort of the Garth Hudson feel, which I agree with, but it's like, it's it's not the type of keyboard part that you would normally associate with Direwolf, I think. It, it's like they hadn't really decided what the mood of this song should be yet because it has such dark lyrics but such a happy melody, right? Yeah, it's like it, it's definitely it doesn't have like the menace that I think the best versions of this song does, like the 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 combination of like the menace and the the jauntiness of the melody I think is always like the sweet spot of Direwolf. It's the contrast. That's the the peanut butter and jelly of that song. And this one is just more <laughs> of like a jaunty version. But again, I I think your point earlier about the studio outtakes was was very astute. I agree with that. I think their studio outtakes are a little repetitive, just because they've already worked up the songs at that point. It's just a matter of nailing down a performance. It's not really about working right. through arrangements or you know figuring out how they're going to play this stuff. And but you do get that from this show, so it is a really interesting way. It's it's an interesting window into what. Working Man's Dead is going to become. And I think, like, this is what I was getting at with, like, the pre and post Altamont thing, which is, you know, maybe it's me interpreting things a little too deeply, but Jerry writing a song with a chorus that says, Don't Murder Me, I think maybe took on a little extra (laughs) meaning after a festival where somebody was murdered right in front of the stage, right? So, like, it's. A little bit like, hey, we wrote this fun, dark folk song, and we're going to give it this sort of peppy arrangement. And then, you know, four months later when they record it, they're like, there's some dark shit going down, man. <laughs> like This song needs to reflect that a little bit more uh, in terms of the mood. And th- I also want to bring up, like, there's uh, a really great interview with Jerry. I think it was for that History of Rock and Roll documentary that came out, like, 25 years ago now, right? You probably have know this thing by heart. Oh, yeah. Miniseries. I own History that. History of Rock and Roll documentary. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you do. If anybody <laughs> owns that, it's Steve Hyden. Yes. Um, but there is uh, like a pretty long interview with Jerry Garcia. You can find, I think, the entire like hour-long footage. It's also like the footage that people made the supercut of Jerry laughing from that uh, is like a very popular gif. Um, but the, he tells a story uh, in that interview about a night in late 1969 at the Fillmore Auditorium. He doesn't say exactly what show, uh, but he says it was, you know, they only played a couple runs in late 69 at the Fillmore, uh, where he was sort of semi-accidentally dosed before he went on stage. And I won't paraphrase the entire story. You should look it up. It's pretty easy to find, and we'll post it uh, when this episode comes out. Uh, But it's all about, like, a shady dude who they knew... Uh, was prone to dose people, brought a giant birthday cake backstage to the concert. Oh, uh, and Jerry, knowing this dude, knew that he probably had put acid in this birthday cake, right? Uh, but Jerry Garcia, being Jerry Garcia, couldn't resist. He was like, I do not need to trip before this show, but that birthday cake looks so good. I'm just going to take a little swipe at the frosting. 
and see if I can get away with that. Uh, and of course, just got, you know, totally spun <laughs> before he went on stage and had all these like paranoid visions of mobsters, he says, in the audience trying to kill him. Uh, and again, it's it's not clear whether it's this show or not. I saw it, like Jesse Jarno when he covered this show and his like Twitter recaps uh, speculates that this is the show where he was having a bad trip uh, because of this like particularly potent version of Dire Wolf. But uh, yeah, it's like a it's it's a great interview to look up and to imagine while you're listening to this show if Jerry was just having these like hallucinations of people trying to kill him the entire concert, which is like a weird. Uh, foreshadowing of you know almost 30 years later in Deer Creek where he actually received death threats and before the show and they played Dire Wolf uh, and the don't murder me line had more sort of you know potency than it normally does but yeah it's like it, it's something to sort of set the stage for your your take on this show uh, of whether oh, Jerry man. was uh, having a real bad time he also says in that interview that the way he like worked his way out of this bad trip is that he decided he was just going to play for his life. Like that was his, his response. So uh, I think, you know, that can sort of flavor how you interpret Jerry's performance on this night. And so we're going out on stage, you know, to go play and I'm, I'm going out there and I'm thinking, Oh God, you know, what have I done to deserve this? You know, I'm going to go out there and play and they're going to fucking kill me. You know, (laughs) you know, So I got, and the only thing I could think of to do was I, I, I said, okay, I, I'm just going to play for my life. I'm going to play for my life. That's what I'm going to do. You know? And so I played for my life, and they let me live. <laughs> ever since then, you know, I mean, that, so that, you know, ever since then, I thought, that works, you know, for me, is to, to play for my life. You know, so, you know, that, that uh, you know, when I forget what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, I, I play for my life. It'd be funny if you just like kept playing Dire Wolf over and over again, and it was just like a three-hour version of Dire Wolf. <laughs> they just kept playing well, it over did, and over yeah. again uh, because you know it. It, it, it like, might it, explain why they did it twice. Well, I was gonna yeah. say that could be it. I mean, you know, just don't eat birthday cake before a show. I feel like you got to save the cake for after because he could have just been like on a killer sugar high. You know, could have just been like too much sugar. And a sugar crash, too. Yeah, exactly. Even worse. It's bad news. Even without the acid. You don't want to have all that sugar before you go out, I don't think. Um, next song is another Working Man's Dead to be track. It's Easy Wind, Pig Pen Showcase. And this one also goes on uh, quite a bit longer than like the studio cuts. about ninety nine minutes long. And uh, there's actually like a pretty cool jam in this version. And I have to say again, like this is more Pig Pen Blues... You know, we're getting, I guess, a total of 22 minutes of Pigpen Blues at the start of uh, this album. And uh, it's really going down well. You know, I have to say, too, like, this is something that occurred to me listening to the show. I don't know if we've talked about this already, but just listening to, like, all the, the Pigpen Blues songs that are in this in this show, it just really occurred to me, like, how, like, Bob took on the spirit of Pigpen after Pigpen died, I feel like. And I wonder to what degree Ham Sandwich Bob is just, like, reincarnated like Pigpen or, like, him sort of taking on the attributes that he remembers from Pigpen. Because there was this idea, again, that, like, they needed a more sort of out-there hype man, a guy who was going to go out and, you know, get up in people's grills, talk about the mojo man, talk about, you know... Turn on your love light, all that stuff. And once he was gone, I just feel like 
oh, did Bob just feel like I have to take on the ham sandwich aspects of pig pen? You know, literally a ham, if you will, a, a pig, a ham. <laughs> um, and especially with all the bluesy stuff that, that Bob does, um, you know, as, as the dead go on into the 70s and 80s. I just feel like like this show. I just felt like I was. There were aspects of Pigpen that remind me of like what Bob is going to become after Pigpen passes on. Yeah, I think that's totally right. You can see it in how many uh, quote unquote Pigpen songs Bob revived later on in Dead History. Like Good Lovin', I think was the first one in the seventies. But then he brought back Love Light in the eighties. He brought back. Good morning, little schoolgirl. At one point, I think, which seems very ill-advised oh, in yeah. a number of ways, but he did it. Uh, no, I think you're totally right. That uh, sort of as Jerry, you know, the, the the as the theory goes, Bob got hammier and more, I guess, sort of flamboyant in his antics as Jerry was sort of fading uh, from his frontman duties and Bob felt like he had to step up. So right. I think it's, you know, very reasonable to think that he looked back to, you know, when was the last time we had, you know, a, a, a co-front man for Jerry, uh, that really, you know, sort of kept the energy high at these shows and looked to Pigpen for guidance, which, you know, it, 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 it feels very strange for this era where, you know, Bob and Pigpen, at least aesthetically are sort of, opposite ends of the grateful dead uh but yeah you know eventually bob sort of grew into this role where he felt like he needed to to bring back that sort of pig pen flavor to the mix well and and brent too has some pig pen aspects as well as far as you know having the big bluesy voice and like him and bob worked together really well and like brent again like he did become almost like a third front man in the dead you know by the end of the 80s i mean he had uh He's very animated, and I, I think certainly much more than Keith was, of course, um, the, you know, this very sort of physical presence on stage. Uh, so it's just interesting to see, like, when you leap between eras, I feel like sometimes these parallels become a little bit more obvious. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to, like, point out, too, that this Easy Wind, I think, it, to me, it's like one of the gems of this volume, and one that I didn't expect at all because I'm so used to the very stripped down easy win that's on Working Man's Dead. And I guess subsequent live versions sort of followed that, you know, very sort of standard pig pen version, very short, tight versions. But like, this is, a, you know, a pretty out there wild jam. It reminds me a little bit of like the Harper College Good Lovin', which. Yeah, uh, you know, on paper you would say, "Oh, it's it's good loving." You know where this is gonna go, but it has this, you know, very energetic and <laughs> ecstatic jam coming out of it. So, like for me, this is one of the highlights for sure. Like hearing the early versions of Easy Wind before they stripped it back to sort of fit what they wanted to do with this more minimal sound uh, on the 1970s albums. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I again like this was another Pigpen song where I was like damn i'm really enjoying this and i think it is for that reason that you were saying it is more of a jam vehicle maybe than you would expect it to be uh on this album
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, folks. Just like Bobby hates rain, I hate my lawn. I've got patchy grass, tons of weeds, and I hate spending precious free time taking care of it. So I'm very interested in Sinlon. Sinlon is the largest manufacturer and installer of synthetic grass in North America. They make safe, clean, environmentally friendly turf. No watering, no pesticides, no mowing. Their artificial grass is made from bio-based ingredients such as soy and sugarcane. And it's made right here in the USA. Sinlon sent us a couple samples, which is a funny thing to get in the mail. But it looks and feels crazy realistic and the kids love jumping on it. I can see how it would work great for a lawn, a playground, a patio, or anywhere else you might need some low-maintenance greenery. For instance, right now, Sinlon is running a contest to win their Dave Pell's Greenmaker Putting Green System. So you can enjoy pro-quality putting in your home or office. Go to Sinlon, S-Y-N-L-A-W-N, dot com, slash, 36 FTV, Check out their products and enter the contest by August 31st. That's sinlon.com slash 36FTV. Um, speaking of jam vehicles, coming up next is the China Rider. And this is like an early China Rider. And I mean... Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, like, when did this debut as... As a piece, like, was it in 69? Yeah, so, and it was earlier in 69, and this is the only eighth, the eighth performance where they stuck the two songs together. So they had played I Know You Writer since, like, the first Grateful Dead shows, and China Cat, I think, came in 67, 68, but the classic pairing of the two songs only occurred to them earlier in 69. So we're catching... You know, we're talking about Primal Dead. This is like, you know, very, very early version of what is going to become one of their staple song duos uh, going forward. And it's like, I mean, I know that you were saying, like, you noted this in our outline that that Jarno has called this the first great China writer, which is interesting. I mean, I still feel like it's not quite where it's going to go that... Like to that place that we associate with this song. And I think that the big thing that this song maybe doesn't have is that like extended middle part. You know, there's some right. of that in this. But I think that overall, this is only about maybe eight or nine minutes. So it's like relatively short for a China writer. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, where do I have it here? Yeah, you're right. It's only... It comes out around yeah, nine and a half minutes. Yeah. But yeah, it like... So it moves pretty quickly... Uh, from the end of China Cat to the the beginning of I Know You Writer, but it has this sort of you know volcanic eruption of notes from Jerry <laughs> that you would get from like a Saint Stephen of this time, I would guess. Uh, so that that's kind of a good comparison for what they were doing with the song at the time. But yeah, if you listen even to the one the night before, they do it on November seventh as well. It's a little more 
awkward getting between the two songs, whereas this one really flows really nicely in the way that we become secondhand to them over the years. But yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, you can kind of put a pin in it as like the time when uh, China Rider really started clicking as this combination. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's no headlight in this part, in this one, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I don't know if they just like forgot the verse, but the, it doesn't have the big crowd cheer line of uh i wish it was a headlight on the northbound train like it's uh yeah they just kind of skip over it <laughs> which is a i guess a sign of how early on it was in this and it's uh what an early incarnation it was that they didn't even sort of hit the big applause sign moment yeah man of the song yeah missing the headlight going into another future working men's dead song coming up next we have high time and this song, it, we haven't really talked about like when these songs were, I guess when they first debuted. I mean, like all these songs really they started playing in the summer of '69, right? Like this, yeah. this song debuted in June. Um, I think uh, like Easy Win was in August. I think that rendition right. from this show is like only the sixth time they played it. So again, like this is all these are like songs that they have not played all that often on stage yet. Uh, so yeah, we're really getting early versions of, of a lot of these songs. What what are your feelings about High Time? I mean, I feel like we wasn't there a High Time on a recent Dick's Picks before this? Or am I wrong? Yeah, it was a couple couple volumes ago. Let me. Yeah, volume thirteen. So okay. We so, so the, that was an eighty one version. An eighty one. So a lot later. Right. Yeah, and High High Time kind of went in and out of the catalog. Uh, later, when it, yeah, like they played it a lot around the time that Working Man's Dead came out, and then retired it until uh, later in the '80s. But yeah, it's uh, you know, like Direwolf, it's like another song that you can you can hear that they have the skeleton of the song, but they haven't quite fleshed it out yet. I guess the difference here is that High Time, even on the album, is has like a very spare, minimal arrangement. So it does sound a little closer to what it would end up being on record. Um, but yeah, you know, High Time, it's fine. It's not a song I think about a lot. Uh, and you can kind of hear, I think, maybe the new emphasis on vocals that they were working on for Working Manstead, because I think you pointed out on the outline that the harmonies are very loud <laughs> and very prominent. And Bob is really working hard on uh like hit, hitting those notes on the chorus uh so you know that that seems to be what they're they're focusing on here in these these early high times yeah high time to me is it tends to be very hit or miss like i i i kind of get bored with this song um sometimes i remember thinking that the dicks picks 13 one was 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 pretty good um but yeah i mean i thought this was fine i don't know i just feel like in the annals of like Grateful Dead ballads, this is usually not the first or second or third choice for me. But again, it's interesting mm-hmm. to hear this again. I guess more embryonic version in this show. Um, after that, we go into the Bob Cowboy song. We have Mama Tried. <laughs> uh, this is another song though that like again like they hadn't played all that much like at this point. Yeah. Well, I looked it up and like it was only a hit 
like the year before for Merle Haggard. <laughs> so this is like a really, really recent cover to be playing. I mean, the 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 Merle Haggard version came out in '68, so this is like covering last year's hit single. Uh, and I think they started playing it in early '69, so even closer to when it was it was probably still on the radio when they started playing it. Uh, but yeah, they are still figuring it out. They on November seventh, there's a version of Mama Tried where Bob just completely blanks on an entire verse in the middle of the song. So it was not uh, you know the autopilot Bobby Cowboy songs that we'll hear. We've heard a lot later on in uh, Dead History. Uh, but yeah, it's you know it's they're sort of picking their way around it still. It's very slow. That's what jumped out to me. Yeah, like, the cowboy songs will get really fast and even you know discoy as they move along. But they kind of are playing uh, probably like closer to the original's tempo, right? Like yeah, a very sort of state stately Grand Ole Opry version. Yeah, I was gonna say that like this feels more honky tonk to me than like w- what the song is gonna become uh you know as a dead song like the i guess that's jerry's guitar it just sounds well a twangier on this version which i like uh-huh. actually i like the fact that this is slower because i think sometimes you know when the song gets faster and as we get into the 70s it just feels like more like a throwaway you know like whereas i think they get more into the groove here and again i love just how big the bottom end is I uh mm-hmm. like I think that's like a a common sort of sonic attribute of like Primal Dead is like Phil just sounds amazing I think in this era and there's like a lot of things that like it, it, and he's just like so loud in the mix that uh like when I think of Primal Dead I just think of like a throbbing dark sound and a, mm-hmm. a lot of that just coming from uh, this, that very prominent bottom end so and I I feel like even this song has it uh which was drawing me into it you know it wasn't it didn't feel as forgettable to me as like a lot of mama trides um speaking of songs yeah and then on the uh, on the upper end uh jerry has started playing a fender stratocaster which i think i learned from the good old grateful dead cast which you know he was sort of inspired by the bakersfield sound honky tonk guitar so he's you know really experimenting with these country tones in advance of you know the the dead's most country rock records to come out in the next year so uh you're hearing a little little flashes of that as well in this show so after this we go into good lovin which i feel like for this song this is like the era to care about good lovin i mean i I guess i'm thinking of you know going back to the dicks picks eight good lovin which i think was it's still something that we reference. It was very revelatory, I think, for both of us because we're maybe both used to like wanting to skip or even bathroom break a good lovin'. But that was like a very famous good lovin', like where they turned it into this jam, and they kind of do something similar with this one because it's there's like a drum solo essentially in the middle, so you feel like they're gonna maybe go into some sort of drums part, you know, proto drum section of the concert, which they don't quite do. And I have to say that generally right. this this version's a lot less interesting than that Dick's Picks Eight one, but um, yeah, yeah, we're getting more Pigpen again. This is like a Pigpen showcase, <laughs> uh, another big one, one of many in this show. Yeah, and like uh, again, Pigpen, you know, coming out and doing like the frontman gig. They talked about how TC 
when he took over organ duties, allowed Pigpen to uh, like stand up and move to the front of the stage, which I think is explains a lot about some of these shows from you know the the late sixties, especially you know the 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 material we're gonna get into on disc three, where he's like you know just rabble rousing the crowd for half an hour at a time. But yeah, you can kind of picture. I, I I think the reason why there is like these pig pen songs sprinkled in, uh, particularly Schoolgirl at the start and Good Love in Here is like we've talked about how all these songs are brand new. Like unless you've been to a lot of dead shows in nineteen sixty nine, you've never heard of these songs before and they're a little bit quieter than what people I think expected from the Grateful Dead at this time. So you know, putting pig pen, a pig pen song in every three or four songs is a way to kind of recapture people's attention if it's drifting away because, you know, they've never heard of High Time or Dire Wolf. <laughs> and it's not what they like expected to get on a Saturday night Grateful Dead show in 1969. So uh, definitely what they expected to get was pig pen coming out and singing Good Lovin' <laughs> and having like a big, you know, blues old-timey rock rave up jam afterwards so these are sort of the uh like you know concessions to the audience uh while they're working on their new material in front of a paying paying audience and we're gonna wrap up disc one with cumberland blues which this is the first time they ever played this song and i feel like you can tell yeah when you listen to it yeah (laughs) feels a little listless uh, maybe maybe people just you know got too a little too excited during Good Lovin' and I was like, all right, we gotta like chill out a little bit during Cumberland Blues. I mean, I just think of this again, like you know, again the Europe '72 version. That's like the definitive version of this song to me, like kicking off that album. And uh, you know, maybe I had that in my mind when I, when I listened to this because it just felt a little slack to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty complicated song. Like, it's a deceptively complicated song, even though it sounds like pretty straight ahead, sort of country bluegrass rock. Uh, so you would expect the first version to be a little tentative. Uh, and I think, like, the lyrics are a little bit different and the harmonies aren't quite nailed. And so this is like a, you know, a curio of the set where you've got all these songs that they've only played a handful of times. And then you've got the song that they're literally playing for the first time ever. Uh, so I think Dick kind of liked, uh, having this, uh, you know, special moment here where you get to hear what, uh, sort of a dead staple sounded like it's first time out, uh, in the midst of all these songs that are a little more well seasoned. So that brings the first disc to a close. And, you know, as we've, already established that this was like the workshop disc this was like the we're giving you a preview of what we're going to be doing in in 1970 uh you know looking ahead to the country rock version of the grateful dead that's going to become prominent in disc two it feels like okay this is the 60s part of the grateful dead maybe even like the live dead version or i guess the live dead section of this album um and i'll just say like i i said earlier that a disc from this album is going into my sort of personal, I guess, hot list for this season. And this is the disc for me. I think disc two was the one I really gravitated to on this album. Um, where, you know, again, like it, the fact that they played this as one long show, it really is amazing, like how evenly these discs break up. Because to me, this feels almost like a suite of music. 
uh, on this on this disc. Um, flows really well, and I guess it's because they were very used to playing this material. I mean, they're all jam vehicles essentially, but um, I don't know. This is the most powerful part of the album for me. This disc. Yeah, it's sort of like it's the the three discs are almost like a reverse chronological order of the Grateful Dead, where you have like the early seventies country rock dead. And then you have the late 60s, Psychedelic Dead. And then the third disc, which we'll get into, is like the really garagey blues rock cover band Dead from their very, very earliest days. So you're kind of seeing like a reverse evolution of the Dead over the course of this volume, which is pretty fun, actually. Like you get to see these eras, you know, sort of time lapse backwards in a way. Uh, And you're right. This is like, it's almost... It's not exactly the Live Dead suite, but it comes pretty close uh, to recreating like the first, you know, two sides of uh, your your Live Dead L- double LP. Uh, kicking off, of course, with uh, Dark Star. So I think every late '60s show had to have a Dark Star. The night before, I had a Dark Star, and of course, this one does too. And I don't know. It's it's very easy to compare this one to the Dick's Picks for Dark Star, which is a masterpiece as we talked about at length in that episode uh this one i don't know if it's a masterpiece but it's like you know i could listen to 1969 dark stars every day of my life probably yeah i mean it's interesting to me because you know we're used to dark star being the centerpiece of you know every late 60s dead show it feels like to me that this is almost like the hors d'oeuvre of this disc like it's easing you in it's not hitting you over the head and it's actually like a relatively compact dark star i think it goes on it's it's just a shade over 14 minutes and we're, i guess this is one of those instances where you're like what do you count as dark star i mean you could say that like most of this disc is dark star and there's like things that are tucked inside of it but <laughs> right. the way it's split up on the disc it's you know we, we're going to return to dark star three times this is the chunk of it, like the bulk of it, um, coming in at 14 minutes, like a little bit over 14 minutes. Um, but I feel like the real exciting parts of this disc are actually going to come after this for me. Yeah. This is the, uh, just the takeoff, <laughs> sort of the, the appetizer. Yeah, you're right. Like, and it's, you know, one thing that is a little bit demystifying about the Dark Stars of this era, if you listen to a lot of them, is that, you know, the the the, the same holds true for the Dick's Picks 4 Dark Star when you listen to the other Dark Stars from that Fillmore East run. But they kind of had a formula or like a blueprint for how a Dark Star was meant to go. So even though it sounds like this expansive, you know, 15, 20, 30 minute psychedelic exploration, freeform improvisation, uh, they kind of have different themes that they hit and different moves that they hit at different times through the dark star. And this one kind of follows that. And if you listen to the November 7th one and this one back to back, they follow sort of the same path up to a, up to a point where it has this, you know, long spacey intro. You have Jerry singing the first verse and then it gets really weird for a couple minutes. You get a lot of Mickey gong action. I thought that this one was especially, gongy <laughs> like it had a lot of like hitting the gong and then like like a the like 
gong version of a symbol grab where he kind of like doesn't let it sustain. He just like cuts it out real fast. Uh, from there, they sort of worm their way back up to the feeling groovy jam, which pops up again uh, in this particular dark star. Uh, and then it goes in a different direction from the November 7th one, which we'll get into talking about. But there definitely seem to be sort of like, here are the dance steps with, that we hit with Dark Star. And each section of that is going to be a different length and going to be a different approach and going to be played a little different from night to night. But it's not like they are completely going into free improv where they don't know where it's going to go next. It's sort of like a uh, almost organized into chapters in a way. And it's just like, we'll organically move from chapter to chapter yeah it's, uh, that we've set up in advance yeah i mean just to compare it again i guess to the dick to the dick's picks four where you have like this epic dark star and then you have a you have an epic other one i feel like on this show it's like they have this really cool dark star that is like relatively chilled out i mean it doesn't really kind of go crazy and then they go to the other one after that and i feel like that is like okay, this is like the springboard into something more sort of intense. And so it's almost like these songs are being packaged together in a way rather than like two separate set pieces. Wouldn't you say? Right. Like, I mean, it seems like it's, it's yeah. much more of like, again, like a suite almost. Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting because so it does segue into the other one, which we're used to hearing very frequently in the Dick's Pick series a lot of jams that go into the other one with the big fill bass line rolling in. Uh, but at this point, the other one was typically played as, you know, part of that's it for the other one with the cryptical envelopment part before and after. So that was like a whole separate suite. And on November 7th, they played Dark Star in its entirety into that's it for the other one in its entirety, just like it is on Dick's Picks 4. Uh, but this time they kind of squeeze just the other one part into this Dark Star and where they would normally kind of really freak out and get real, you know, acidic and ecstatic. Uh, they do that in the context of a, the other one jam, which goes on for quite a bit of time before it gets to the Bob vocals. Like, it's where you talked about, like, what do you count as Dark Star in this set? Like, it could be, like, just a 14-minute Dark Star that sort of, you know, weaves back into Dark Star for briefly a couple times over the course of this disc. Or you count the other one as part of Dark Star. Or it's all Dark Star, and it's like a 70-minute Dark Star that just happens to have some other songs. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like it's uh, pre-planned. But at this point, you know, the other one was such a oddity to hear on its own that it does feel like th that's where it swerves off the blueprints a little bit is after this sort of happy-go-lucky feeling groovy jam, uh, it tucks into this really dark, nasty, the other one jam for another, you know, uh, 12 minutes or so. Yeah, it's a little over 12 minutes. Its way back to the Dark Star. Yeah, yeah. They, they go back to the Dark Star for like a minute. And again, I'm going on what the liner notes are saying on the disc. And then is something really cool there's this uh it's called the uncle john's band jam it almost makes me think of like an overture or something for uncle john's band like it's this really yeah. kind of cool instrumental thing where you know you know jerry's playing the melody on it and uh it's pretty awesome because again this is another working man's dead song and a song that they have not played live at all yet at this point 
Yeah, it doesn't debut until about a month after this show, December 4th. Right before Altamont. Yeah. A few days before Altamont. Yeah, and they had been jamming on the Uncle John's Band theme for a while. Like, there's a bunch of shows in the fall that have this Uncle John's Band jam. Uh, so, and the Dark Star the night before also has an Uncle John's Band jam in the middle of it. So, again, it seems like a little bit of like a pre-planned theme that they were going to touch on at some point in the Dark Star, but it's just so good. <laughs> like, it, it really rules to hear the Uncle John's Band melody in this context, which it would become sort of the epitome of like the Working Man's Dead, folksy dead song, like with the, you know, very like sharp harmonies and like a very like acoustic arrangement. Uh, But this version, it's just like, this is what like Uncle John's Band would sound like if it was like, uh, you know what? the Grateful Dead getting a song on the Nuggets compilation. Right, exactly. Like it, it's super garagey and super aggressive and it starts with like that you know, the sort of outro jam to Uncle John's Band, which is sort of the heaviest part of Uncle John's Band. The, they they move that to the front before they get into this jam where Jerry is just playing the melody of the of what would be the song but with this really like gnarly tone and yeah, I just I think it's so cool like hearing it in this completely different version. It, and even if it was pre-planned, it doesn't matter. It just sounds great. Yeah, and it just adds to the vibe of this show, just feeling like a friends and family show. You know, it's not literally that, but it's a hometown show. It just feels like this is something that they were going to do maybe in front of a friendly audience, something that they wouldn't do if they were just on the road. You know, just like, oh yeah, we're we're, we're just going to play this riff because like, we, it, you know, we're working on it in the lab right now, you know, and this isn't even really a song that we're prepared to play live yet, but we're going to do it in this sort of kind of grungy, cool way in the middle of this extended, jammy part of the show, which is really cool.
It's like the soft launch of Uncle John's band. Like we're gonna <laughs> give you a little teaser of it uh, before we actually reveal what this song is gonna sound like. So yeah, it's really cool. And then it yeah it brings it back to Dark Star again. We get the second verse of Dark Star, which I think it's been in the Dixpick series, you know, uh, several versions since we actually heard them close out the song <laughs> like they barely even got to the vocals on the last couple versions we heard so this is like a good you know reminder that there is a second verse to dark star that they remember to play every once in a while and then it like pretty quickly uh drops into the very familiar segue uh that you would hear on live dead uh from dark star into saint stephen yes yeah so yeah we're we're like in the heart now of like late 60s dead where you know we've had this preview of Working Men's Dead, which is going to be a pretty decisive turn from this era. In many ways, the opposite aesthetically from the long jams of Live Dead to the more concise folk-based songwriting of Working Men's Dead. But again, that's one of the fascinating things about this album that it is a between era for them. You know, like I don't think we mentioned this, but like Live Dead came out two days after this show. So right. you're just about to drop that album, uh, the the definitive account of, of this era. Um, and yeah, and St. Stephen, I mean, this is the song, I think even more than Dark Star for me, the song that I think of when I think about late 60s Dead. Because this is a song that they are going to stop playing as they get into the 70s, as they have material that I think... I mean, the thing about St. Stephen to me is that... Um, I don't I I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. I think it is a great vehicle for this incarnation of the dead, but I can see why they stopped playing it as they came into the 70s and they started writing, I think probably better written songs. Like I don't know like if this song can really hold a candle to the types of material that Garcia and Hunter are going to be turning out in the 70s like where they are really writing the kinds of songs again that are just like perfect examples of like the American songbook, a song that like anyone can play in a, uh, on an acoustic guitar and have it make sense. Whereas a song like St. Stephen, I feel like it works when the dead play it, you know, it works in this live environment, but like if you break it down as a song, I think it falls apart a little bit. Yeah. Well, like, you know, Jerry's excuse for not playing it when it was such a, highly requested song during later eras of the dead was almost like he was a little bit embarrassed by it. I mean, he hated like having to remember all the words to it. Well, it's very 60s. <laughs> it has a lot of words. It's very 60s. And sounding. a lot of fussy words. Exactly. Yeah. And like Hunter was, you know, the early Robert Hunter lyrics are so incredibly like cliched psychedelic sixties. I mean, I love them. Uh, but they're hilarious to read on paper. Right. Uh, and and this next stretch is like all of them, all the most hilarious ones. Maybe not the most hilarious, but some of the like most iconic ones, I think, uh, show up in this like St. Stephen 11 pairing because you get also the William Tell bridge between the two songs, which is just like so over the top and like Renaissance fair. Right. That I, I, I love it, but it's hilarious. It's cool for this um, era, but like it's not a great song compared to what they're going to be doing in the early 70s, I don't think. I think like. Th- right. And I think they knew that, that there was a timelessness to what they were doing 
at that time that doesn't apply. And I, like, I don't want this to turn into like I'm knocking Saint Stephen because I think it's great for this time. I'm just saying that like when they were writing, I think better songs, it made sense to maybe consign this more to like a late '60s period than what they're going to be doing moving forward. Right. And the thing that I love about Saint Stephen. It's not so much the song, though I think the song is very good. It's also just like the intensity that they play it. That's what I mean, yeah. Uh, which, yeah, which they could only do in the late 60s into, you know, maybe the first couple of years of the 70s. And when they brought it back in the late 70s or the versions that came back in the 80s, it's way slower. And I don't think it really suits the song at all. And it kind of puts these kind of clunky lyrics uh, in even a worse light <laughs> by playing them, you know, sort of slow and stately like they did later on. And it's the kind of thing where, like, I, you know, I totally get why it was a favorite song of the Deadheads and, like, the number one song everybody always requested for them to bring back. But I really don't want, do not want to hear, like, 1994 Grateful Dead playing St. Stephen. <laughs> like, no. It's just, like, it should stay in the 60s. Like, it's preserved well in amber at this era when they were playing it so well. It doesn't even really, like, jam out in an interesting way. Like, that's the other thing is, like, the version that on this set isn't that much different from the version on the Live Dead set, and they're both great. But if what you want from the Dead is songs that are going to be different you know, every time they play them or every time you hear them, like St. Stephen is not going to do that for you. It's kind of like it, 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 it does its thing and it does it very well, but it's never going to open up in any sort of interesting way. The coolest part of this song is when the drums come in at the beginning. And I think it's the, the song is about the dynamics of the drums and like how hard they hit the guitar riff, like when they do the stop start thing. Like that's what's cool about oh, this yeah. song. And I feel like by the end, like the Ren Fair stuff, the like the yeah, the William Tell thing, I'm starting to lose my patience with it a little bit at that point. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's get the, let's get this out of here. Especially, I maybe more so on this album because I know the eleven is coming. I just want to get to the eleven because right. I feel like the eleven yeah. is like, you know, really like the intense dead of this period that you're not really gonna get right. much from this band as they get into the 70s as hard as they could rock at times in the 70s just the intensity that they can conjure in a really good like 11 from like the late 60s um is uh, again like they're not going to be able to replicate it after this period right well the 11 is like the song that you know they did what I was hoping they do with Saint. I was just talking about with Saint Stephen where they did leave it in the 60s I think they played it once in 1975 and that was it. Like, they never brought it back back. And, uh, you know, of course, they brought it back in the sort of post-Jerry bands, like Phil and Friends. I think I saw Phil and Friends play it, actually, once. And I think Dead & Company probably plays it. But, like, the Eleven is just the perfect encapsulation of what the Dead were good at uh, in sort of 68, 69, at the end of the 60s, where it's just, it's so intense, it's so ecstatic, in how Jerry plays it. And it's just such a crazy song in so many ways. Like it's called the 11 because of its time signature, which is like a time signature that no band in their right mind would ever write a rock song around. It's like, it's a Phil Lesh, Robert Hunter collaboration. I don't know how many of those there are, but (laughs) like, it's like such a great, like, you know, 
mishmash of sensibilities where it's Phil writing some crazy 11-4 musical experiment and then Robert Hunter just like really going for it with these psychedelic lyrics. It has some of my favorite Grateful Dead lyrics in just how over the top they are. Like I've always said if I was competent enough a musician to have a Grateful Dead cover band that eight-sided whispering hallelujah hat rack would be the name of my band (laughs) just because it's like the craziest thing you could ever like write for a band to sing in a concert uh but yeah it's like I'm I'm so excited that the 11 finally made it to a dicks picks it's crazy that it took 16 volumes but I guess that's you know what happens when you don't get to a 60 show until volume 16 um and this version, it's really cool. Like, whereas St. Stephen in this volume is very similar to the Live Dead version, I felt like this one was a little bit different from the Live Dead version, which I, like, know by heart in that it was, it kind of, like, took its foot off the gas pedal a little bit in a way that I thought was interesting. Like, it kind of slow, slowed down, reduced the intensity a little bit so that it could build up to this, you know, crazy, maniacal 11 peak Whereas the Live Dead version is just like crazy for the entire runtime. everyone this is steve from 36 from the vault and look i know a lot of you out there are very hairy people you're wookies for crying out loud and now that you've been stuck in quarantine you're even hairier than usual it's time to get a nice shave so let me tell you about a company called harry's if you switch to harry's for your razor needs you're gonna save a ton of money you're gonna save enough money to buy 26 cups of coffee in new york city you're gonna save enough money to pay for six months of your netflix subscription uh so If you want to get involved in Harry's, where's a good place to get started? Well, right now, Harry's is offering a free trial set to our listeners. Uh, What you want to do is you want to go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV. Again, that's harrys.com 
backslash 36FTV and you're gonna get this trial set. Now what comes in the trial set? You get the weighted ergonomic handle, you get the five blade razor, you get the rich lathering shave gel, and of course you get the travel blade cover. What is the travel blade cover? I don't know, but I think you should order the set to find out. So what you wanna do is, again, go to harrys.com backslash 36FTV and start shaving and saving today. See, this is, it's interesting hearing you talk about this because this is one area where maybe you and I diverge a little bit because I, I know you really love late 60s dead. I don't like it quite as much as you do, although I like it a lot. But like one issue I have with this era is that especially as we go from the 11 into disc three. And it's interesting because, you know, the 11 basically like fades out and then it fades back in once we get into disc three. Like we're really talking about, like if we didn't have to worry about CDs, this would have just been one kind of continuous thing of music. Or it, I mean, it really does kind of segue directly into into caution going on, on disc three. But like really like we've reached the part of the album where, it's almost entirely instrumental. And like I, I spoke earlier about how Jerry as a vocal presence, like at this point is like pretty checked out. Like the only voice or not the only voice, but like the main voice we're going to be hearing, uh, like from here on out it, 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 it is Pigpen. And maybe it's because Jerry is like tripping balls on cake acid. <laughs> oh, oh, birthday cake. Maybe yeah. that's it. And <laughs> I have to say that like I I do appreciate the CD version of this album just because like I don't know if I'd want to hear a like caution immediately after the 11. I think I like that suite on disc 2 because I think that sometimes for me um late 60s dead it can get a little bludgeoning for me like it cuz it's so intense mm -hmm. for so long mm -hmm. and I think that's one thing I would say is better about Dick's Picks 4 because I think, I mean, you have that second disc, which is like an hour of just brilliant jams and like, uh, you know, just transcendent playing. But I do feel like it's broken up a little bit better on that record than it is on this one. And I think I just, at some point, appreciate songs returning into the fold after long periods of jams where I feel like this is just jams for a long time. And you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And it's, it's like, I, I love jams, but I think there needs to be a little bit more of a balance for me sometimes. And I think maybe it's because I'm, uh, you know, raised on seventies that I, I think, I think I kept waiting for that, like dynamic turn where you're going to go from like just mind melting jams to like a beautiful ballad to break it up. Yeah. And you don't really get that on this album. It's just pedal to the metal pretty much from here on out. Right. Yeah, there is definitely no uh, late show, come down ballad <laughs> in this show. It's just like... Not even like a morning We're going to ramp it up and up and up <laughs> until it like pretty much breaks free from, you know, songs entirely on disc three. <laughs> like, it just... It, like... Uh, yeah, just completely dissolves and deconstructs into feedback by the end of this, you know, very long song suite. And you're right. Yeah, like seeing it live, it would have been, 
close to 90 minutes, I would say, from Dark Star all the way through to uh, We Bid You Good Night. Without a set break, so, too. No, no set break. Without a set break. And it, it's all, it always baffles me with The Grateful Dead that, you know, they famously have so many tuning breaks and technical problems, like, early on in a show. And then they'll just play for like 90 minutes straight. <laughs> and maybe like the technical problems and tuning is still happening. And it's just like they don't stop for it. They just keep charging through while people are fixing their problems. But like they they seem to have figured it out because they can play like a very long continuous suite of music here that CDs could not handle. And even, you know, if you listen to it on streaming uh yeah like you talked about you get this fade out at the end of the 11 and then a fade back in for caution at the start of disc three uh very again very similar to live dead which you know if if you're listening to it on vinyl you have to flip the sides which kind of ruins the experience of uh all these great segues they were doing and i mean i guess the assumption should be that at this point Everyone is like tripping balls in the audience too. I mean, this just yeah, feels like total that's a thing. acid test. Because yeah, because we're gonna go from, um, you know, the eleven, which is you know like this, and again, like I think that's like one of the highlights of this album. Like I, and again, just this two in general, like I love from beginning to end, and I, I think that's the one that I return to the most with this album anyway. But yeah, then we're gonna go into caution, and like caution ends up being like thirty-seven minutes of like it's it's pretty cool again i think like for me like if i can break up this album and just listen to disc three like on its own maybe isolated it's like pretty awesome like i don't know if i'd want to hear this all in one sitting but like if i was just popping in disc three um it's pretty cool like like this part like like is this the highlight for you would you say like or are you a disc two person too I would definitely be a disc two person. I mean, disc three is, it's very cool to hear, but it is testing my pig pen tolerance for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and part of that is down to like, all right, you have this very long caution and then you have, uh, you know, a, a turn on your love light from the night before put on as filler, which is not something they would ever do, you know, on a single night they would not play both of those songs <laughs> and give you like a solid 75 minutes of pig pen rapping uh so that's it's a little much uh i respect it that it's fun to hear uh but it's a, yeah it's a lot to take um and you know i have mixed feelings about caution like i i would definitely prefer love light to caution you know more nights than not caution i feel like doesn't really uh vary as much so, like, it, it, it kind of sticks to this, like, you know, walking baseline blues groove for a long portion of its runtime. Uh, whereas I feel like Love Light kind of cycles through a bunch of different sort of chugly blues themes. Uh, so, this caution, it, it, it's cool. I mean, one thing I was talking to a buddy of mine about it, and he brought up like that he thinks it sounds a lot like the velvet underground which i think is true and i've always loved the sort of you know early overlap between the grateful dead and the velvet underground in the 60s uh of course both starting out as the warlocks before picking much better names and but also sort of running in a similar 
musical zone before they definitely went off in their separate directions and this caution like i can almost talk myself into liking it if i think of it as like a sister ray or like a black angel's death song just like really repetitious long lengthy uh workout (laughs) that kind of uh you know like bludgeons you into liking it over time but I I also think it would have been a lot better to be on a lot of drugs right. <laughs> and hearing it rather than sitting at home listening to, you know, 35 minutes of this. Well, and like the, the Velvet Underground comparison really makes sense, too, when you consider that there's the feedback track on here, which goes on for like nearly eight minutes. It's like a long yeah. bit of feedback. We I, I think our last feedback was Dick's Picks 4 which I think is only, I think that was like three or four minutes. Like it was a lot shorter than this one. And I love the feedback actually. And you know, I, it, the Velvet Underground comparison makes sense to me. I, I can hear that uh, on the caution as well as other parts of uh, this record. The feedback tracks always just make me think of like Sonic Youth. Like this is just like Sonic Youth, Grateful yeah. Dead. And they seem like, like almost like a proto punk band, like when they're doing stuff like that, which I think is pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. And that's where like TC really feels like he's in his element too. Cause as we said, he was playing like experimental music with Steve Reich and Terry Riley before he joined the dead. So like, that's kind of like where he's most in his comfort zone uh, on the organ. And I think he adds a lot and like this feedback, even though it's, you know, feedback like it's like hilarious to give it its own track like if it's like it's a composed you know piece of material uh this one seems to have a little more form than your like uh usual feedback like the dick's picks four one seems a little more formless and just pure noise whereas this one kind of has like a little bit of a structure to it and yeah i think it's probably it's a it's a hilarious deadhead thing to say, but I think this is probably my favorite feedback. <laughs> and I actually did look up heady version for feedback. There is a heady version feedback page, and this is only like the fifth highest ranked uh, version of feedback, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> the Dick's Picks Four version is the number one feedback, uh, and all the comments on heady version for feedback are like. I can't believe we're ranking versions of feedback, but I like this one. So I mean, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good one, I think. Yeah, I, I would I would rank this feedback above the Dick's Picks Four feedback. I like this one a lot. Yeah. So, and it, I don't. I, we would be remiss if we don't mention that there is a little interlude in Caution, which is even more. Uh, sort of time travely than the Uncle John's Band Jam, which is the main ten. So, do, were were you familiar with the main ten, Steve? Yeah, I mean, what's sort of like a like a plane in the band type? Like, like wasn't that integrated into that? I mean, I, you can kind of tell. Like basically, pl- pl- yeah, it is like the like proto version of playing in the band, uh, and that's why. When Playing in the Band eventually came out as an actual song on Ace, right? It debuted on Ace, uh, though it, it was played live before that. Uh, it's a it's a weird Ware-Hart collaboration because uh, Mickey Hart wrote the main 10. And it, it, it's you know called the main 10 because of a time signature thing again. So it's like 
uh, a cousin to the Eleven in that they were just experimenting with different time signatures and the Eleven is in Eleven Four and Main Ten is in Ten Four and it's like a weird drummer thing that Mickey dreamt up and they wrote a riff around. So uh, yeah, so coming bubbling out of this caution after some weird rando dude reads a poem for some reason. Uh, in the middle of caution, they suddenly drop into playing in the band, which every time I listen to it, it takes me a minute to be like, 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 it, like it feels wrong, right? <laughs> You're like in late 60s dead and all of a sudden they're playing, playing in the band, which is a song that isn't going to come out for two more years. And yeah, it just like, it always grabs my attention in the middle of this sort of droney blues jam. Uh, and uh Yeah. It's, it's really cool to hear this early version. links up again i think with the thesis statement of this show being a bit of a tweener show it's like it's between the late 60s primal dead and pointing to what they're going to be doing in the early 70s and this is like a very early preview of, of playing in the band of course and also i mean i think the main 10 ended up on mickey hart's record right like rolling thunder i think the main 10 is on. oh that, that's true on that record it is on there as well so yeah. uh so we get out of caution. We have eight minutes of feedback, and then we're going into the acapella. We bid you good night, um, and you know, of course, I always think of fish when uh, good when the Grateful Dead do this. Of course, the Grateful Dead did it <laughs> long before fish, and I'm sure I, I horrified the people who hate fish out there. <laughs> but that's just the link, you know, between the two biggest jam bands. They have this acapella element that they do at the end of shows. And I mean, this is something that, I mean, I think again, like with, with, with late sixties dead, it is a double-edged sword. I think with how in a way formatted these shows are, even though there's so much improvisation, obviously at this time, but there is an arc that is common to a lot of these shows that I think sometimes makes them for me, like a little bit boring. I think not boring. That's not the right word, but like, there's not as much variety in the set list. 
in in the sixties as there is in the seventies, just because there aren't as many songs yet. But I know, like, I mean, there is also something maybe comforting about the structure here too. If if you're really deep into this uh, period, yeah, I think it's almost like I, I I see your point totally about how predictable these things can be, and I agree that there's a little less to be gained from listening to like show by show to this sort of late sixties era. Like you can, you can pick out representative shows a lot easier in this era that are sort of shining examples of what they would do with their repertoire at that point. Cause it didn't change a whole lot, but I think there's also like something to be said for how the dead shows of this time were organized in a sort of, like almost like a religious ritual <laughs> where they, you know, build in intensity to the point where uh, they just like, they, they can't even play songs anymore and it just dissolves into feedback. And then you get this very soft benediction in the form of we bid you good night. And I think like the predictability of it is part of the power of it especially for people who were seeing them a lot at that time. And I think it kind of grows out of the acid test to some extent where they're like, we want to create this emotional arc for every show. It's like an emotional arc and it's also kind of a drug arc. Like as the drugs are kicking in, things are going to get more and more intense. And then we're going to kind of hit this crest and then, you know, calm you back down to earth. Uh, So I think at the time they probably felt like they had found this really effective recipe for hitting that emotional arc and they would always play or like a pretty set sequence of songs to hit that arc uh, with a couple other things mixed in from time to time or you know whatever sort of gestational themes they were working on like the Uncle John's band theme or the main 10 or these other things Uh, but they would pretty much hit their marks over the course of the night and people knew what to expect and they knew what to expect and they could improvise within that structure. Uh, but, you know, to their credit, as they cross over into the 70s, they stop doing that and they realize they can create an emotional arc by, you know, mixing and matching different songs right. to hit those emotional beats. And that's really like a triumph of the dead in the 70s is like, we can create this religious ritual, but not do it you know, in sort of this scripted way. Well, I mean... Like we can... They even yeah, had, go but, ahead. But they did have a structure at some point where you'd go into... Odd, you know, you'd have drums, you go into space, which yeah. I think has... It's just maybe shorter. It's like, it's more condensed. Like, again, this is like a long buildup to this where you have like, I got like 90 minutes of very intense jamming, essentially. Whereas... Um, like in the seventies and going into the eighties, you might have like the space section. And then you have that thing that, you know, we've talked about before where you have the beautiful Jerry ballad, which is, you know, sort of bringing you back down to earth. And then you play, uh, the triple berry, uh, when people are going out into the parking <laughs> lot. So that becomes the new thing. No, I think you're totally right. And I think, um, I think uh, I'll just say again that like I, overall, I, I really like this album. And of course I love live dead. I think, as you said that like with 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 late 60s dead because of how similar a lot of the set lists are that if you're going to listen to like every show it can feel a little repetitive maybe although you know I, as we often say about pigpen i think if if you saw pigpen in person he makes a lot more sense like he would be a really fun guy to see at a grateful dead concert and like if you were at 
the Fillmore Auditorium, you know, just like, you know, tripping your balls off. It'd be pretty amazing <laughs> to sit through 90 minutes of just intense jams. And then, yeah, like have, like you said, this benediction at the end where everything's really quiet and still. Um, in a way, almost, I think, I mean, what you get out of We Bid You Good Night is maybe in a way what you would get in the 70s out of Morning Dew or Stella Blue or, you know, Warfrat or something. Like the like the slow song at the end that is going to chill you out and just be really beautiful. And you're going to get the great Jerry vocal and the transcendent guitar solo. And I tend to like that more, I think, but maybe it's it's just what I'm more used to. Right. And I think they just didn't have the confidence to do that at this point. Or the they didn't songs. Have the material to do that. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have the songs. And they didn't yet. have like Yeah, and they didn't uh you know, the like I said, they opened the show before this with Morning Dew and they ended some shows with Morning Dew around this time too, but there wasn't like that you know, perfect song that they could play at the end of this. So right. they did and we bid you good night and that was that was it. And they, like they left, there will be there will be no encore. Yeah, <laughs> like what, that was uh, that's how they sent you off. Yeah, what what late sixties Dead had was intensity and energy, which they would not have again. And what it lacked was songwriting. And mm-hmm. I think I think you had that sweet spot of that era that everyone loves that seventy to seventy four you know window where they kind of had both, and that was the magical period where. Okay, we could still, we're still young enough that we can kick ass, but oh, we have this incredible songbook now to draw from. So we can jam, but we can also just play stunning songs. And the great thing about this show is that you see the early seeds of that coming into play, where they're going to be making that leap, where the songs on the first disc, you know, they're, they're not quite nailed down yet, but holy shit, they're really promising. And like once they right. get those songs locked in, you know, look out, you know, they're going to be on a real roll after that. Yep. You can, uh, you can see the next chapter of the dead, uh, even as they're doing, you know, the current chapter extremely well. Yes. So that's part of what's so cool about this show. I feel like we're going to pay a short shrift to the love light since we're already sort of wrapping up our experience here, but I don't know that there's that much to say about this love light. I mean, it's like, it's fine but I don't think it's as good as the Dix Picks 4 version. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to say about the filler? Well, I have to say that, you know, I've, I think overall I enjoyed Pigpen in this show. I will say that I feel like I enjoyed it more at the beginning. And maybe by the end, I'm like, okay. I've had a lot of Pigpen. <laughs> and to like be given like another 25-minute helping of Pigpen at the end, you yeah. just feel like, Okay, I'm a little full right now. I don't know, right. <laughs> but um, again, I think you know. I, I feel like this season, especially, we've talked about these albums in terms of discs, and not just as a show that you would maybe listen to from beginning to end. And as much as this show, you know, again, it, it wasn't divided into sets. It's one continuous piece of music as it was presented. But I do think that this album really does work well as three different discs that you can consume in different ways, like from disc to disc, where the first disc is this fascinating snapshot of where the dead is going, almost like an like a like a demos or outtakes disc that you would hear on a working men's dead box set. 
The second disc is, I think, the most exciting part of the album, and it's just, I think, capturing the late 60s dead at their most thrilling and energetic and giving you just the perfect amount of that on that disc. And then this third disc is, I think you said this earlier, it's like the garageier dead. Um, it's like, I think it feels like a little bit like more of the same from set from the second disc, but like not as good, but on its own, I think there's still a lot to recommend on this disc. And if I hadn't listened to two discs before this, I'd, I would probably easily eat 25 minutes of love light, you know, and, and ask for more. But yeah, if if you're going to listen to this album all in one sitting might be a little much at the end. Yeah. I mean, this, what this volume sort of reminds me of is that, uh, weird bears choice live album they put out in the seventies, which came out right after pig Ben died. And it, it, that's the one that is drawn from the same shows as Dick's Picks 4. Uh, but it, it has like a side of acoustic dead and then a side of electric dead that is all pig pen songs. Right. And it was sort of like kind of a tribute to pig pen right after he died where they were like, we're going to pick, we're going to highlight a bunch of pig pen stuff from these shows. Um, even though there's all this other great music from these concerts and they were constrained by a single LP so they could only pick a little bit of stuff uh, to, to to fill it out, of course. Whereas, like, this volume and this disc especially feels like sort of another take on that idea of that Bear's Choice, which is like, let's really highlight what Pigpen did well with the dead at sort of the peak of his powers before he was getting too sick and was kind of sidelined by the different types of music that the dead were playing. Uh, so that's like sort of the argument for having both caution and love light on the same disc is if you're in a pig pen mood, I, I can't think of a better <laughs> disc, single disc to reach for than this one, because you're going to get uh, every single like pickup line that pig pen would drop into these songs. You're going to hear a lot about Mojo and Mojo hands. Yep. And you're not, uh, and, and, and no uh, Jerry reach it over your shoulder and no Jerry at all, no, yeah. Not hearing Jerry's you know, voice at all, get, which I have to say, like, I don't like going this long and not hearing Jerry's voice. I want to hear yeah. Jerry sing because, you know, I think he's an incredible singer. I, I really like the sound of his voice. There's so much warmth in his voice. And, you know, we don't need to tell you that. You all love Jerry's voice, too. But it's like when the, when, when the scales are tipped so far toward pig pen, I just feel like, we're maybe losing our way here a little bit. We gotta we gotta bring Jerry back <laughs> into the fold. Um, that ends our conversation about Dick's Pick sixteen. Again, very cool album, very fascinating snapshot of a band in transition. Really glad that we were able to check this out. Um, we're we're doing another Whiplash special. Uh, yeah, going into the next uh, Dick's Pick seventeen, uh, nineteen ninety one. Right. 22 year jump 22 year jump and this is the latest we've gone i think so far yeah right because the last uh 90 show was uh 1990 so we're back in the uh the bruce vince era and back to the boston garden for the like it's only been i think four volumes since we were at the boston garden yeah back in boston and uh i'm not gonna say too much about this but it looks like we're gonna have a special guest in that episode too uh 
unless something falls through. So I won't say the person's name. You know, and I'll just apologize if it somehow falls through, but it looks like we're going to have a special guest, our first guest ever uh, in that right. episode. A momentous occasion. So, 17 volumes. So excited to dig into that. So until then, I think it's time to wrap up. So I th- I guess we, we bid you good night. Should we do the acapella thing here? Should we sing for people? <laughs> or? I mean, like we didn't mention this, but they... They they don't exactly sing it very well on this volume, so well, <laughs> we could maybe almost we could maybe almost do it as well as the dead. But I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try. Let's not put our listeners through that. All right. Uh, well, yeah. Well, thank you again, everyone, for listening to Thirty Six from the Ball. <laughs> we will be back with more Grateful Dead Dick's picks in our next episode. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.